for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free, or perhaps one that came directly from us, there is Liberation Martial Arts Online. Thanks to Jibriel Walker, Brad Walker, and Justin Hamilton for signing up. If you want to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can also find uncut versions of our shows along with Fighters Brew and SDS9 on Patreon. This is Sam. And this is Southpaw. This episode was sponsored by Chad Loader, SH, M. Shelton, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. This episode contains sensitive content, including discussions of sexual imperialism and children. Listener discretion is advised. Today is a very special episode of Southpaw because we're going to be talking about an experience you don't normally hear a lot about, which is the Black and Indigenous experience in martial arts, and in particular, Muay Thai, and training Muay Thai in Thailand. To talk about this topic, we have two guests, and I'll let them introduce themselves. All right. Well, my name's Ron. Uh, I'm 24 years old, but I've been training martial arts, specifically Muay Thai, for about 14 years now, now this is 2023. But I also train other martial arts. When I was in high school, I wrestled four years throughout high school. And I'm also a re- very recent blue belt in jiu-jitsu, even though I really barely train jiu-jitsu compared to striking. And uh, I've been involved in combat sports pretty much the majority of my youth. And then I decided to take a break when the COVID-19 pandemic hit which is was right after I came back from Thailand, actually. And uh, I had the impression that I was going to fight again within a year's time. When the pandemic got serious, I decided to stop fighting. I'm on hiatus. Like, I, I'm on, I've been, I haven't fought in a few years, but so I consider myself on a hiatus, but I haven't completely crossed out the possibility of competing again. I'm currently a history student. I'm a history major and a non-traditional student since I tried to go I went to college when I was 18, dropped out, went to community college. Now I'm back in school because martial arts took up so much of my time and I thought I was going to be a pro fighter. And when that didn't work out, I realized I need a degree and something to fall back on. So now I'm in school, still training, and uh, I'm coaching now as well. Not necessarily martial arts, but I'm a personal trainer now. I do want to get back into coaching martial arts, courtesy of uh, the Liberation Martial Arts curriculum. Got to plug that for Sam. But uh yeah, that's my experience, my background. I'm also black and from what's considered the DC metro area. But if you're from the area, you can call it the DMV, which basically consists of Washington, DC, Southern Maryland, Northern Virginia. So a lot of my experience as a black person growing up in what some consider like the belly of the beast or a richer county in America, training martial arts in that area really I have a, I would say I have a unique perspective because I don't really get to talk to a whole lot of people 
who uh, view martial arts in the way that I do. So I'm very excited to have this chat today. Has your family been in that area for a long time? The thing is funny with, uh, especially like uh, black families who like grew up more in like the Northeast, we're all kind of spread out everywhere. And for the black listeners, like listening to this, we're spread out everywhere, but it all is funny how it all happens to be like, we're spread out in the same places, if that makes sense. Like, you know, I could be talking to a black person in the street. Like I live in Richmond, Virginia right now. And, uh, you know, I can have conversations with other black people in the street. And it's funny, we all happen to have like family from like certain areas that like are predominantly black in nature. And we just, just a lot of transients between like just fam, our family roots. So a lot of even black Northerners have roots in the South. So it's weird. I always, it's, it's funny. It's, it's funny whenever people ask that, cause it's like, eh, I mean, I'm kind of, my family roots are kind of everywhere, but I ain't, I'm not unique in that aspect. I will say. Well, it's probably not weird, right? It's probably historical. Absolutely. I have what is considered the uniquely black quote unquote American experience, but I kind of have a, you know, I got my own critiques of that as far as like, we do have the unique black American experience, but I also don't want to conflate my experience as being something that's like part, well, it's part of America, but not in a good sense. And I feel like too many people kind of treat that as like, it's like, Almost kind of how like certain people treat poverty as something like honorable or something you have to go through to purify yourself. It's kind of how talk, people talk about like being, being black in America, like almost like glorif- it's almost like glorifying an abusive relationship where it's like, that's, I mean, I, I actually prefer that my ancestors didn't have to go through what they went through in order for us to get to this point in time. Because as far as I can tell, not a whole lot changed and a lot of people suffered and died for good, great causes that have been denigrated. And I don't feel the need to try to, you know, romanticize America because I know what America has done to people who look like me, both internationally and domestically, you know? You got a whole society, like you got a whole society that's built off of basically free extracted wealth that they didn't have to pay people for for hundreds of years. And that money doesn't just go away, whether people want to admit that or not. So that's my that's my big critique where it's like, yeah, I got the black American experience, but it, I don't I'm not really proud of the American part. If that's controversial. Then like whatever. It's like the euphemism of a nation of immigrants. Yep. And it's like glorifying something that shouldn't be glorified to your point. There's a lot of diversity in this country, meaning there's all kinds of people here, but it's like diversity paved with blood. Often this country flexes that, but it's like nothing to flex about, at least how it got there. Yeah, like there's not it's nothing to be proud of. If you really like know the even if you're looking at it from like I'm like the most basic of historical perspectives, it's hard to make an argument that's something to be proud of, even from like a liberal perspective, you know? Even some of the like works that I've seen recently, which you have actually specifically put me onto as far as like looking globally at what the US has done globally, which we'll get into more obviously with this with the title of this episode, seeing as both Michael and I have been to Thailand, but like, it's just like, even like liberal historians who all they want to do is just like find the truth and share the facts. They have to basically say like, yeah, a lot of what's bad is going on in the world. That's going on in the world was orchestrated by the U S not necessarily because they're like staunch communists or anti-imperialists. That's just, that's just the facts. Especially the modern world. Right. And we could get into history and coloniality 
as this conversation progresses. But we have Mike also, who's not even in the U.S. He's in Canada. Yeah, so my name's Mike. I'm from northern Saskatchewan. Um, currently reside in uh, sort of in the prairies for well, pretty much my whole life. Um, I'm, you know, I'm uh, I'm First Nations. I'm Cree. Um, or we, you know, we call it Nahewak. And uh, yeah, so kind of raised in kind of raised in rural Saskatchewan, grew up in a small town, very small town. I graduated with like, uh, I think 11 people um, in my high school. And yeah, it was uh, very like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to like romanticize, you know, the rural upbringing too much because it was like, you know, hella racist in a lot of ways. And, uh, but, you know, yeah, that, that um, there was just like, there's just something I suppose like um, that sort of imprints on your on your ways of thinking as you get older, right? You know, you always sort of take the places that you were raised within, and um, it sort of shapes how you look at the world. And certainly, you know, growing up Cree uh, in the prairies in northern Saskatchewan in our particular climate with our particular history and geography, yeah, it's it's been uh, it's an interesting journey. You know, I know part of this introduction is to sort of position ourselves or our standpoint, so to speak. And um, yeah, being a First Nations man, um, I'm 37 years old, um, and I came to martial arts like quite later, I suppose, relative to Ron. Um, I started in my early 20s, and uh, I kind of came to it more so because of um, I, was, I worked a lot in the bar industry at that time, and um, it was more just an interest of like self defense, I suppose. Um, that's what really kind of brought it to me in the first place and um yeah so i've been training for about over 15 years um and it's brought me you know some really incredible experiences uh i did a, i was doing a little bit of coaching about five six years ago um we could talk about that a little bit later on about you know uh, just some interesting insights about coaching in this place and the politics of martial arts in saskatchewan is, is interesting and a bit you know quite different i suppose and um, than what I understand the states to be. Um, but yeah, I kind of, you know, First Nations man, like my, the territory we kind of grew, grew up in and around was, we call it Treaty 6 up in here, but it's sort of like, you know, mid-northern Saskatchewan, um, sort of like a lot of prairie land kind of mixed in with northern boreal forest. And so, yeah, like the land and um, and that sort of aspect certainly figures, features prominently in sort of like, how Cree people think of themselves and how they relate to one another. It's, you know, we, we always say, you know, we come from the land and, and, and it's a, it's a powerful sort of uh, aspect of who we are. So we tend to sort of like, you know, talk about our, uh, our, ourselves and our histories and our communities in terms of, you know, where, where, what land we, we, we come from. And, you know, my family certainly were um, Plains Cree, but my, my first nation, my reserve, um, in particular, is situated along the South Saskatchewan River, and traditionally, our families um, uh, camped and um, uh, basically resided in and around that sort of South Saskatchewan River, which uh, traditionally was uh, a very popular travel route, and um, it's where sort of a lot of different sort of communities, uh, nations, sort of intersected. So, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because um, I know I have a lot of more than just uh, Nihewak ancestry within me. I know I got some Dakota and Nakawe or Anishinaabe um, um, family in there as well. And I, I just sort of attribute that to the fact that we lived along a, a popular travel route. I mean, speaking of land, we're talking about U.S. and Canada. 
but that border is like a fictitious line. It's just like one day, hey, you just can't go back and forth, right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> we got a border here. It's like, hey, did you ask us? Nobody asked us about this. Yeah, yeah t- totally. And, you know, kind of being raised with that attitude, being like, you know, Canada and the US are sort of these, um, you know, fictions, I suppose, that, uh, you know, are, are my grandparents and, you know, and sort of, certainly like the indigenous community and the people that sort of I was raised around, you know, kind of just, you know, tongue in cheek sort of attitude towards, you know, um, you know, Canadian and U.S. sovereignty, right? You know, because their borders, borders were, like you said it already, Sam, that like, you know, their borders were imposed on us. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, our families and our, and our kinship relations extend well beyond just, you know, Canada and the U.S., you know, like, you know, our families um, and our kinship systems can, you know, extend well into the States. And that's often the case, too. You know, I have several friends and and uh, colleagues that um, families kind of are just, you know, spread all across, you know, uh, uh, northern United States and southern Saskatchewan and as far east as B.C. and as far west as Ontario. And uh yeah, it's, it's a vast, diverse kinship network. And um, it's kind of arbitrary because, you know, a lot of people get caught up in like, oh, is it American or Canadian? And we just sort of like, well, no, <laughs> we're, we're, we're Dakota or we're Lakota or we're Anishinaabek or we're Nihilwak or, you know, it's just sort of, yeah, it's funny. What were the martial arts that you initially took? I guess part of the alert to martial arts, I guess, kind of partially stemmed a little bit from the fact that my dad was a boxer um, when he was in his early 20s. And I guess, you know, we kind of grew up I should also preface, like, I was raised by my grandparents, but, like, um, knowing my dad growing up, like, he kind of always talked about this era of time when boxing was a big part of his life and how, you know, important it was and how great it was. And so I kind of, like, that that attitude kind of, like, seeped in my brain a little bit. And so when I kind of jumped to martial arts, it was sort of like there was this, there was this subtle impulse, I suppose, being informed by this desire to, you know, to appease my dad, I guess. But, um yeah, working in the bar, uh, certainly there was a more practical um, need for knowledge to just, just kind of like keep me safe. And uh, my assumption was, you know, at the time, you know, and I think that comes with, you know, um, you know, misconceptions around martial arts. You know, you go in, you take a, a couple classes, you learn a few moves, and then, you know, you know how to handle yourself in all these different situations, right? And that's just, you know, that that sort of outlook immediately sort of uh, gave way after I started training. But um, yeah, I, I, at my first foray into martial arts was with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai. Um, although the, um, I, so I started with BJJ and I, I guess I did that for about, you know, four or five years, but um, I kept getting injured. I was just sort of getting like ragdolled in the gym a lot by these like really like super strong, like white farmer guys that were like, didn't know how to, didn't know any restraint. And it was, uh, yeah, so it was just like, it, it didn't feel like a safe place for me anymore. So I just kind of stuck with just the Muay Thai and um, really took that up and eventually started, you know, competing and um, traveling overseas to train more. So was the training environment then diverse? No, it wasn't. Uh, when I first started training, like it was um, the gym I went to and still go to uh, is kind of a bit of an institution in Western Canada. You know, they're one of the very like small handful of gyms in Western Canada that have been operating since like, I think like late sixties, early seventies. And, um, and in that case, you know, we, it's a, it's, it's a very much like a karate centric gym, right? Like when I first went in there, it was like, you know, karate is their focus. Right. But, and I, and I suppose like when I first started there, it was like, you know, it was a, it was a, very different facility than what they're currently in right now like they 
we moved to a new space, which is just like this ginormous old tennis facility that was retrofitted into a, into a martial arts gym, which is great right now. It's got like all the space in the world, which is fantastic. But I, I kind of miss the old days where we were kind of stuck in this little place in downtown Saskatoon here. And, uh, and it was like, you know, it was, it was more like, uh, I don't, I don't want to romanticize it, but I mean, it was, it felt more communal. It felt a little bit more sort of like, um, hands-on, I suppose. Um, but it was like, you know, it was, uh, it, there was no, I was, I think I was one of only two brown people in that whole gym, uh, that whole time I've ever been there. I probably one of a handful of people. And in fact, I'm the only, um, non-white person who's ever fought on the fight team, um, outside of, um, uh, one one dude who was uh Chilean, but he ended up getting booted off the fight team because of uh uh well basically some unsavory uh shit that he did with regards to a fellow teammate at one point and you know yeah so it was it was it's it was it's been a pretty uh solitary experience um being indigenous um training martial arts and doing it at this particular gym you know which isn't very diverse is it mostly men yes absolutely um it's mostly men. It's it's getting better, you know, in the last I'd say five or six years, you're definitely seeing a lot more women coming into the gym and training and uh per- particularly with the younger groups. Like I've noticed now, especially with the with the younger ones, like um those who started training early on stuck with it. And so you're starting to see more parity in terms of gender within the gym. But um certainly it's still very like cis heteronormative spaces, right? You know, like I don't really see a whole lot of sort of um, like I've never seen um, trans fighters or uh, I've never seen really spaces that in my experience were really accommodating towards um, towards the, the LGBTQ2S uh, community here in Saskatoon. So, yeah, it's 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 been it's it's been um, it's been a little bit challenging, I suppose, being in that space because it hasn't really been accommodating to sort of non-white, non sort of heteronormative sort of uh, um, uh, bodies and types. Yeah. Did you see martial arts training from the beginning as political or did you see it initially as an apolitical endeavor? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, like, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Like, you know, looking back at it right now with the perspective and the knowledge that I have now, certainly it's, it's you know, it's easy to characterize it as, you know, in, in the way that I have. But when I was first started within this space, you know, it was purely sort of uh, practical, right? Like, you know, I wanted to... I wanted to train. I wanted to learn these things so I could, you know, keep myself uh, safe within that industry. Because I, I worked, you know, the bars I worked within were like, man, they were gnarly. They were really dangerous. Um, they were just there was frequent violence. You know, I dealt guns, stabbings. Uh, you know, I I was stabbed a couple times myself working there. So it was, it was really, in, it was like it, the, the 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 practical need to feel safe in those spaces was really driving my my desire to be in uh, to, to to study martial arts and um once i yeah once i started doing it um you know i i kind of it was a sort of a love affair right from day one um although you know because i didn't have you know the political understandings that i do now um i didn't really sort of um view the spaces i was in at that time as you know super problematic i guess but it was obvious to me that you know like you know, being the only brown guy in the room, it was like, you know, it was quite obvious to me that it was, um, it was just, but that wasn't unfamiliar to me. Like that growing up 
in, in small town Saskatchewan, being the only brown kid in, in my school, um, it wasn't sort of like unfamiliar to me. And so I kind of like went into it like I did with most things up to that point in time, just sort of head down, go in, do the work. Don't sort of raise noise. Don't sort of be loud or boisterous, you know, because, you know, like the nail that sticks out gets the hammer, right? And and that's sort of a survival tactic you learn being Indigenous in Saskatchewan is, you know, you learn to sort of, um, I don't know, blend in, I suppose. Speaking to that, then, how would you describe the culture of the gym or just the culture of martial arts that you experienced? It was like a kill or be killed attitude. Um, and certainly that was the ethos. And I still think to today, even like that's certainly an attitude that's, you know, undergirds uh, the, the attitudes and the philosophy of, of, of training martial arts um, today. But, you know, back then, that was certainly like the attitude. It was like, you know, steel sharpened steel. Uh, you know, we call our fight training sessions the Shark Tank. Uh, it's like it was very like, you know, you got to like step up and like hold your own. Um, if you get injured, it was it was you got to kind of just fight through it. It was um, it was like a very like you got to tough up sort of um, attitude. And it wasn't super nurturing in a lot of ways. And I was. You know, I had I was kind of suffering a lot from like um, little just injuries here and there. Um, luckily, like you know, I kind of grew up quite athletic, I suppose. Um, you know, I I trained a lot in racket sports actually for most of my youth. Um, I competed at the uh, provincial and national levels when I was in in high school, so like high sort of level athletic sort of development wasn't sort of unfamiliar to me and um certainly getting into that space it was it was satiating a desire that i had growing up about like competition and um you know just just the work of of athletics was something that you know i i really found myself being attracted to and um and not only that but working being in that space at that time you know it was quite obvious to me that like you know it fed into that sort of that traditional masculine sort of idea that, you know, um, you know, you got the, the only way to be as a man is to be a person who can like, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me as I'm saying this out loud, a little bit of that, like sort of toxic man sort of sentiment. You hear like the Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro fans kind of talking about it, but you got to kind of always be lethal all the time kind of thing, you know, because that's what actually promotes safety is always being lethal. And it was kind of like that, kind of really fucked up attitude that, um, you know, definitely was, I'd say part of like, certainly at that time, part of like MMA culture and, um, and keeping in mind too, that's no, there's another important thing I should probably mention is that like MMA is huge, like around this area, especially at that time. Um, you know, there wasn't, you, you, there wasn't a bar or venue that wasn't showing, you know, UFC fights. And it was always such a, big event people would kind of gather around especially within like native communities like you know it was it's it was such a a popular sport and um and with the rise of mma and um i i certainly think that also sort of influenced my decision to get into it because you know i was watching ufc um from a very early age and so kind of like getting into that space um the culture at that time was certainly you know i would say uh it's evolved but you know in some ways, it's pretty much still exactly the same. It's still that very much like, you know, um, suppress your other parts. You know, you're here just to sort of, you know, torture your body to like get better kind of attitude. What do you think made MMA so popular in that area? 
it was new. You know, it was like this idea of stripping traditional martial arts kind of down, taking away the rules. Um, there was uh, sort of this desire uh, to see people. Well, uh, you know, the the, the the desire for violence, you know, is, is definitely part of it, but also to see um, um, to see like, you know, this this skill and like there's a big sort of aspect of warrior culture too within um, a lot of indigenous communities that I think feeds the, this sort of um, conscious or unconscious desire to see yourself as a fighter, quote unquote. And um, certainly I think that's what helped popularize it within indigenous communities is that, you know, we're already sort of like have an affinity for, for pugilism, I suppose, you know, Um, even in like, even in this area, you know, there was a lot of Métis Indigenous boxers in the 70s. And, um, and yeah, I think that just, you know, appreciation, appreciation for, uh, for boxing and martial arts as was already sort of part of the, the, the firmament within Saskatchewan. Um, but yeah, with, with in, um, in the early 2000s, though, you know, the rise of MMA in the UFC, it was like, you know, and also too, like people here love to drink and it was an excuse to get wasted with other people <laughs> together. <laughs> what attracted you to Muay Thai? Well, um, it was two things. Uh, one was the movie Ong Bok. <laughs> when I was super young, I was just like, what the hell is this? And like, how do I, how do I get into it? And like, this is just, it just blew my mind. I couldn't, like, I mean, even just trying to like think and put myself into that mind space of when I first watched that movie, it was just like, it just kind of like peeled back my brain and thought about like, oh, this is all these other different ways of like expressing your body. And my experience with martial arts up until that point, you know, was like most people in, in Northern Saskatchewan, which is pretty much non-existent. You know, we had this like, uh, a guy who did Taekwondo classes, um, once a week every weekend in a town that was about 35 kilometers ish away, but it was usually, you know, it was expensive. You know, we were, I grew up quite poor. And so, you know, it was just, it was just sort of outside of our means at that point in time. And so, yeah, like like the experience of martial arts was pretty much non-existent at that point. But um, so yeah, Ong Bak was a big part of it. And then the second part of it was um, watching Anderson Silva. And uh, when I was watching like, early videos of Anderson Silva. I remember that one fight he fought, uh, Chris, Chris Levin. Yeah. 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 Where he does the upward elbow. Oh, that was Tony Frickland. Yeah. Tony Frickland. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, he's how I got into Muay Thai too. That's, he's the sole reason I did Muay Thai instead of wrestling in middle school straight up. And he had a, and he had a way of carrying himself that was like, more attractive to me, I guess, as a martial artist, as opposed to, you know, people that I were seeing previous to that, you know. And so, yeah, like, it was like partly culture, partly watching what I was seeing on, on UFC is kind of like, you know, attending these fights, you know, because at that point in time, they would come, you know, not, they weren't like even every month, they were every like once every few months. So it was kind of a big event when they'd come together. And obviously, when you're seeing like this guy just absolutely dominate the sport, it was just like, well, clearly there's something there, you know, um, not only is have this aesthetic quality that I was really attracted to in terms of like how the body moves and, um, but you're also seeing this guy just completely wreck like every person he's being put in front of. So it kind of told me two things. One, it looks cool and it also, it works. And so that told me kind of what I needed to know in, in terms of what its possible import could be 
for working in a bar, right? Because I was thinking to myself, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to sit in a bladed stance and like, and try to tee off with some guy in the bar, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it didn't seem like it was going to be something of much value to me. And, um, of course, that was, you know, my understanding of martial arts at the time. Now I've kind of, you know, I see things a little bit differently now, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was, um, media and it was, uh, like the movies, it was, uh, watching Anderson Silva just wreck dudes. And it was, yeah, that's kind of what brought me into to Muay Thai. And what about you, Ron? So I was initially, it was funny. I actually chatted about this recently in the discord. So this will probably be a familiar conversation. Y'all just get to hear my voice. But so I was originally a basketball player growing up. Like I was really in the basketball, was hooping every day. But truth be told, I was getting to a point where I wasn't really liking the sport in middle school for personal reasons, mainly because I started coming up in the uh, AAU circuit because, you know, I thought I was going to, you know, want to play for high, play in high school, maybe try to get like an opportunity to get a scholarship in college, you know, because, you know, every black kid who plays basketball, is definitely scholarship or they're definitely going to go D1 or D2. It's, it's inevitable, but I didn't really, I, you know, I wasn't really that good and I was short and I didn't have the physicality for a lot of them boys playing at the highest level of AAU. And honestly, I was a bench warmer most of the time just because I just wasn't, I just was not that good compared to everybody else on my team. It really wasn't fun. Uh, I wasn't enjoying it at all. And I just was like, I was just done with it. And around that time, so like I would say maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. It, se- it seemed a lot longer when I was younger, but honestly, it's probably about a y- no more than a year and a half before I decided to play basketball. Uh, I discovered MMA first, specifically because we had a PlayStation 3 and I was playing UFC Undisputed 20, 2009, actually which in my opinion is still the best MMA video game to this day. The EA Sports ones absolutely suck, just this one as an aside. But anyways, I was really into it. Just, it was a fun game to play for me as a kid. You know, I'm like 10, 11 years old playing this game. But I also was like, yeah, it's really cool. I want to be able to do that. And so I was thinking about potentially just like, yo, you know, I'm quitting basketball. Maybe I should wrestle in middle school. But everybody's like, oh, all those kids, you know, wrestle when they were like four, they'll kill you. They were like all that, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, fine, what am I supposed to do? And then, you know, I started like binge watching, like, uh, when I, we had, uh, when we finally got cable, my family got Verizon Fios. There was an old, some OG MMA and even kickboxing fans remember HDNet. Cause that's where like all the K1 replays were at and like all like the kickboxing fights were at. And then at the time, Spike TV was still around before it became Paramount. And then I was watching all the UFC Unleashed. I was watching Best of Pride. I was, I mean, I was watching all of it, dude. I was like in the Sakuraba. And Anderson Silva specifically is what got me into Muay Thai. Because my main thing with Anderson Silva is just like, it just looked pretty. Like, I'm like, that's, that's good fighting, you know? And I appreciated a lot of the other guys doing the sport, you know? I like, you know, I was still watching, like, when I first started watching UFC, despite being 24, I remember UFC pre-ESPN. A lot of people my age who are UFC fans don't even know that Spiders used to have sponsors on their shorts, which is how much the narrative has changed even in the last handful of years, just for perspective, which is why it's a 
like I love the fight studies that Southpaw does because, you know, you specifically, Sam, and even Coach Jason, shout out to Coach Jason as well. Like y'all are OGs, so y'all know things that a lot of people today just don't know. And so as far as like my experience with Muay Thai, a lot of it really MMA was the real thing that got me into Muay Thai, ironically. And things kind of circle back around. Now, you know, I'm no longer fighting Muay Thai, so it's not the thing that I'm consuming the most. But I still do. That's my main sport to this day. Like, I'm I'm a Muay Thai fighter, even if I never fight again. I'm a Muay Thai fighter for life. I'm a Muay Thai guy for life. But MMA, I will never disrespect MMA as a sport. I'll disrespect the culture all day and the people involved. That's a, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> but uh, but seriously, though, as a sport, I will never like shit on MMA as a sport because I feel like, and to keep this conversation relevant to martial arts, I feel like one thing that I dislike about MMA and I also dislike about Muay Thai, Muay Thai doesn't get a pass on this too, is this need to constantly shit on other martial arts, you know? Even jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu doesn't just be shot on, but the problem is they never shit on it for like the right reasons. It's always like in a, some. It's always like alluding to like something like like some like really like masculine trope, like oh they're grappling on the ground, you know they're not real shit like like dumb shit like that. Like it's it's child it's childish to say the least. But like if we're gonna critique a martial art, the way I see it, if we're let's critique real things and not impose these like false masculine dichotomies onto combat sports that can express themselves differently in different people, which is why I got into it in the first place. I like the art aspect. And I feel like a lot of that art is being taken away because of forces outside of our direct control, whether it be marketing, the UFC's branding of just fighting, period, not even just MMA, just what good fighting is. You know, they don't even reward their best fighters the best. How funny is that? And then, you know, just as far as like the narrative surrounding like quote unquote effective martial arts, you, you probably, y'all probably both heard this a million times. What's the most effective martial art for self-defense from a bunch of guys? Let's be real. Fucking white guys who live in the suburbs, live relatively safe lives, have a lot of disposable income to train, spend fucking Two hundred, three hundred dollars a month training only jujitsu, and then they want to. They they think because that they think they have the secret to self defense because because they definitely have experience being in a situation where they need to defend themselves rather than being the person that people probably need some defense against. Usually, it's the other way around with these people, but they don't do enough for self reflection to analyze that. And even with Muay Thai. There's a lot of one problem I ran into even before I became political. Originally, Muay Thai was purely an athletic pursuit for me, apolitical, but a truly athletic pursuit. I just wanted to get better. I wanted to be a pro fighter. I wanted to be on K1. I wanted to fight in like Kurik and Hall, be like Boycott and all of them. No, I was obsessively watching Mumpini fights, the Rajadhanarm fights, stadium fights, Omnoy fights. And I'm like in high school watching this. Nobody knows what the hell Muay Thai is when I'm in high school. Like, at best, I can have a conversation with people about wrestling, but it's it's so I just I just love that uh, Muay Thai has this thing where they they like are proud of like they want to they want to encapsulate the beauty of Muay Thai, but they do it in a way that like glorifies the worst parts of it. If that makes sense, like there's so much beauty within Muay Thai 
yet there's beauty they only find beauty in the things that actually don't i don't i personally don't like about it but a lot of people don't like it about it they might not say it out loud but you know i don't necessarily find it proper that like you know a lot of judging in the stadiums in thailand has a lot to do with catering to the gamblers that has nothing to do with how i feel about thailand or thai culture that's just an economic thing you know i'm looking at it as a fighter or the western glorification like you mentioned of Poverty. Exactly. Whether it's in the U.S. of like the hungry basketball player or whatever coming up. Oh my God. And it's the same trope. Yes. In Thailand. Oh, the beauty of their poverty. (laughs) Yes. That is, that is exactly it. Like, uh, and it's funny because you, you asked Michael about how how diverse was the gym setting. And for me, I got to say my gym setting was at least my initial gym setting was diverse. I will say that. Now, diverse as far as like race, but if we're talking like, was it mostly men of a certain income bracket? No, it was not diverse at all. And I'm blessed to have parents who saw how passionate I was to train martial arts and allow me to pursue these endeavors, travel as much as I did and all of that, because I know they didn't have it like that. And they re- all they really wanted me to do despite that was to do something that I loved and enjoyed. So I will forever thank them for that, no matter what, because... This shit is expensive, first and foremost, which is another reason why I hate the effective martial art conversation, because it never takes into account finances, income, person's work schedule, none of that. It just assumes we all are equal. We all have $300 to $500 worth of disposable income. Every month. Exactly. <laughs> and just train five day, five to six days a week. Didn't you say your dad also did some boxing? Yes, he did. Actually, so... I mentioned earlier, I grew up in the D.C. DMV area. So my dad grew up in Prince George's County. And if you're a boxing fan, that's where Sugar Ray Leonard is from. And he was training at the gym that uh, he he came up in, that Sugar Ray Leonard came up in. And his son actually trained at that same gym. And when my dad found out I wanted to do Muay Thai, he was really excited. And uh, it's funny, he might, I might actually share this episode with him just so he can hear this, but like, it's funny, he really wanted me to get into boxing to help my Muay Thai more. And when I was younger, of course, I'm younger, you know, I don't, I don't give a fuck what my dad says. He doesn't know about this. I'm, I'm the Muay Thai guy, you know, I'm the shit, right? But I look back at it and I kind of wish I had took, taken some of his advice. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, I wish that uh, boxing was more accessible today as it was back in his day because I remember there was an incident and he probably remembers this better than I do. So that's why I'm probably going to share this episode with him. But there's an incident where I was preparing for a big junior tournament, a 125-pound junior tournament. And like this was like 2013, 2014. And I was like, you know, at a point in time, may not seem like it, but, you know, there was a point in time where I was one of the best junior fighters in my weight class in the country. Those days are those days are gone. I'm I'm not I'm not gonna be that guy hyping up my junior record, but I'm just giving context for this story. But I wanted to look at a local boxing gym to get my hands right because I really wanted to learn some boxing. And and this is gonna delve into a this is gonna delve into the conversation, you know. And keep in mind, I'm a junior fighter. This is very important. I was a junior fighter. I wasn't even fucking I don't even think I was 14. I'm an amateur fighter. Clearly a Muay Thai fighter, just looking to cross-train in some boxing to help my hands. And basically, to make a long story short, I get to this gym that's only like 10 minutes away from where I was living at that time. And the gym was right across the street from where my dad used to work at. 
which is how he knew about it. So he just figured it'd be convenient for him. And it probably would have been easier if I started boxing more because it was near where he worked at. But the coach who was at this gym basically said, because I'm not going to stick with boxing only, then I'm going to take the skills that he teaches me and use them for my own. And I'm not making this shit up and use them in Muay Thai and not give him any credit for it. And he didn't basically didn't allow me to train for this. So what that meant was he didn't allow a, a kid, an amateur fighter to train because he didn't think that he would get any props for it, even though I'm not even getting paid in these fights. You know, so that was my first experience with boxing. But this is not unique to boxing as well. And we'll probably talk more about incidents like this just in the fight world in general. But I think back on that incident a lot because, man, I wonder how many people, aspiring martial artists, aspiring fighters have encountered a situation like that where all they're trying to fucking do is get better, improve their craft. And because of the ego of a coach, not because of because of the pure ego of a coach. They kind of got pushed away from a sport because of that shit. Because I know I'm not the only one, and this probably happens a lot more than a lot of people want to talk about. So, But I love boxing despite that. And I've really grown to love boxing just as much as Muay Thai, which is why I try my best to... I like connecting those two better than MMA because I feel like MMA is heading down a path that I do not want Muay Thai latching itself onto because I can see the shit storm brewing from the gambling situation with James Krause to just, you know, this power slap bullshit. Like, this, that, like, there's so many things happening in MMA right now that I don't, I want more, I want the greater Muay Thai community to look at MMA and not be like, yo, we should do that shit to get more money. Like, nah, look at what MMA got wrong and don't do that shit. That's the, that's all I ask them to do. But, you know, I'm living on an island here, man. You know, I'm, I'm struggling out here. So, you know how it is. The reason why I asked you about boxing and making the connection with both of your histories is because for a lot of martial artists of color, that's not unusual. They often say they had a parent or somebody in their family who was boxing, especially for black and brown communities, especially of a certain era, because you could track poverty over the years with boxing. That is a part of boxing history. And then I also want to make a point about Anderson Silva. For a lot of martial artists of color, especially of a certain age, people don't understand how important Anderson Silva was. He isn't just a fighter. He's become something more than that. I wanted to now ask you both about Thailand because you've both fought and trained in Thailand. And I think for both of you, how you saw your experiences at the time is different from how you see it now. As Mike said, today's eyes are different from the eyes he had back then. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess like a bit of context. So I first went to Thailand to train back in 2008. And uh, man, that seems like so long ago. And I suppose a lot's happened since then. Obviously, you know, this was before um, like smartphones even like were really a big thing. Um, you know, basically everyone had, you know, your at that point in time, certainly in Thailand, it was still, you know, just handheld Nokia's for the most part. And um and, you know, we used MSN Messenger still, you know, to, to, to talk with one another. Um, I'm giving away my age here. But, uh, yeah, that, that, first, that, that first trip, uh, 2008, was really important for me for a lot of reasons. One being it was my first, um, like, growing up poor Indigenous in Saskatchewan, it's like, you know, not a lot of opportunities to travel. Um, but my mom, from a very early age, always, like, taught 
me, uh, my siblings and I like the importance of travel and how important that is for a person's development. And so, you know, she like, um, I'll never forget, like, you know, when we were 15, like she pretty much put herself in like really intense debt, basically just to get us to a trip to Hawaii. And um, Hawaii is like really important here for all sorts of reasons that we'll get into. But um, it sort of like shaped this attitude towards travel that I carry with me and that was really nurtured by my mother. And so um, traveling overseas alone for the very first time was like a, a pretty big deal for me at that point in time. And I wasn't motivated to go out there to fight. I should be clear on that. I, my, my, I wanted to just sort of like, you know, I just graduated um, from university. I got my bachelor's degree and, um, you know, I was kind of doing that thing. Most kids do when they, you know, get the degree, they go and find themselves after, you know, going through university and going through that, uh, going through that drudgery. But um, my goal was actually to live out there for for a, for quite a while. Um, I wanted to live out there for at least a few months, um, just kind of see how things go. And um, if I fought, that'd be great. But that certainly kind of wasn't that my my motivation. It's if I'm being completely honest, I think I was actually too fucking terrified <laughs> to fight at that point in time because it was still very much like a uh, a practical thing, a fitness thing. I was really sort of realizing too, like. At that point in time, after you know a few years of training, I was starting to see Muay Thai more as a um, maybe I didn't explicitly have the language for it at the time, but certainly I was beginning to see Muay Thai as a spiritual sort of venture because um, I grew up in a in a quite uh, in a quite an abusive household, and uh, trauma figured predominantly in my in my upbringing and my family's upbringing, and certainly with my siblings, and so. I was starting to see like this, I don't know, I don't want to call it redemption, but I saw peace, I guess, um, a sense of serenity that um, Muay Thai was giving me that I didn't quite experience anywhere else. And so I really wanted to devote my time and effort into kind of pursuing that a bit more. And so um, although the desire wasn't competition at that time, um, that first trip really showed me a lot because, you know, it was my first trip overseas, like peeled away a lot of my preconceptions about what Thai people were like, what Thai culture was like. And, uh, and then certainly the training was like, you know, was really intense. Like it, I'd never experienced like a proper Thai training camp before. And that just completely wrecked me. Like I was just, it was so rewarding, but like at the same time, it was like, it really showed me the difference between, um, you know, Thai training, um, methods versus the ones that I was kind of experiencing back home. Right. Cause I was training, you know, two, three hour sessions every day, six days a week for, you know, for, for a long period of time. And so, you know, my athletic development was just improving so much, you know, I lost a lot of weight. I was, you know, starting to see myself in a, in a very different light. And, um, and yeah, so that first trip, um, I, I would have stayed longer, but what ended up happening was, is I rented a, a this is, you know, lessons learned, but I rented a moped and, um, and for anyone who's traveled out to Southeast Asia, you know, you, you're, you shouldn't give your passport out to anyone um which is what i did at this moped rental place and i uh yeah i ended up actually running the moped over a cliff trying to go um to this uh to this little tea house up on a up on a hill in copenhagen and uh yeah so suffice to say i dragged this moped back to the to the guy and ended up getting charged like pretty much all the money that i had saved up uh, to, to hold me over for that time and so um i ended up spending like pretty much the most, most of my trip, that first trip, um, like 
just really um, pretty much almost broke. Um, I would have went home a lot sooner, but my coach, um, I'll never forget it. Like I, I was staying at this camp um, called uh, Chinarach um, Muay Thai. It's in Copenhagen. And uh, it's uh, the, the coach basically, um, he cleaned out a room and he said, like, you can live with me and my family. And like, I shared breakfast, dinner, lunch, weekends. I helped out with their, they had fights every Friday or Saturday night. And so it was a really good experience because um, it kind of like, you know, I got to actually live with this high family and this, um, and the, and the coach was a former, you know, Lupini champion. And so it was just like, you know, it was a, a series of unfortunate circumstances actually led me to having a more enriched Muay Thai experience because, you know, Westerners come into that space and they come in often, you know, with, you know, decent amount of money with expectations of the creature comforts that we have at home. And I didn't have any of that. You know, I had a mosquito net and a hole in the ground to, you know, to, to do my number ones and number twos. And, and that was fine. You know, that was, that was, that was great. Actually it was, um, you know, I didn't really have any sort of uh, lofty expectations in terms of like what my accommodations needed to be. But I felt like in a way it gave me a much more grounded experience um, being able to sort of get up with the coach, go to, you know, stay in the same house as a coach. And certainly that also like I started to feel more part of a community and, uh, and yeah, that was, that was, that was really good. But, um, the, the next time I went was a couple of years later and then that's when I actually fought. Um, at that point in time, my coach here, um, he got his sort of, I'll call it Muay Thai cred, I suppose, um, from Grandmaster Toddy, uh, who at that point in time, was running a Muay Thai gym out of Las Vegas. Gina Karana's coach. Yeah, Gina Karana's coach, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, at that time, you know, my coach had sort of encouraged me um, to check out Grandmaster Toddy's gym um, at some point when I, if I ever get the chance. And we, uh, I went to, so I went to Thailand again in 2011 um, with a training, with a group of guys from my gym, actually. Um, it was only supposed to be a couple of weeks, but I ended up staying for you know a month longer than everyone else. Um, and I made the decision, um, you know, during that trip to fight in Thailand. And I, my coach, um, introduced me to Grandmaster Toddy at that time. And uh, yeah, I stayed at I stayed at his gym, and that's kind of where I stayed. And um, I I did about yeah I did three trips to Thailand in 2011 to fight and uh, to train with Master Toddy. And and uh, yeah, that was. Um, that was an illuminating experience, um, you know, just in terms of like going from the first experience I had in like, you know, in the islands down, down, in, down in, the, in, the, in Thailand, Southern Thailand to then training in Bangkok, you know, it was, it was a much more different experience. And plus, you know, I was also <laughs> uh, the, the gym I was at, uh, Master Toddy's gym just came. Actually, we were like two weeks there after the uh, that Fight Girls reality show was playing that was just recorded there. And so, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting, uh, you know, cause, um, Gina Carano at that point in time was, you know, becoming a, was, was competing, I believe, and was, you know, a fairly well-known name in, in Muay Thai. And so it was kind of cool. And I, there was kind of like, there was this allure. It's like, oh, I'm training with the same coach, you know, like coach Gina Carano and, you know, and all these, in a lot of, in a lot of European Muay Thai champs as well. And so it was, um, it was interesting, you know, um, to, to sort of like navigate that space and then like. And you, you brought it up earlier, Sam, was like, you know, the motivation to fight, you know, was it to just sort of beat a Thai person as if like it's the final boss at the end of like, you know, this video game. And it's like you can wear it as this badge of honor. Um, 
if I'm being honest with you, I think that was this sort of like, there was this sort of built-in assumption, I suppose, when you go to Thailand, that if you get to fight a Thai, like you're you're fighting against someone who's the best at it, right? Like, because the assumption is, is like Thai people are at the best at Muay Thai and ergo, you know, the logic is if you beat them, like then that's sort of a, that's sort of like elevates you, I suppose. But, you know, that's a really problematic assumption because, you know, when enough people are saying that, it starts to breed this sort of like disposition, you know, that Thai bodies in particular are just there for brutality or violence. And certainly that's an attitude that a lot of foreigners or Falong, you know, folks um, who go to Thailand certainly treat the country, the people, the land um, like they're disposable. And that's certainly been my experience every single time I've been there. It's um, It's very obvious and it's very in your face just how western chauvinism and like just tourists come to that place and treat it like a toilet you know and um and it's 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 hard for me to to sort of see how that attitude could not have shaped my you know my desire to want to be the thai person right like because my actually my very first fight in thailand it was actually against uh a british guy and there was sort of like this uh like i don't know i don't really call it disappointment but there was also like if i'm being fully honest with you too like i've only fought like white people and so there's been like this sort of like being a being a native guy in the prairies like there's like a little bit of i'll call it like pride i suppose that comes with that and it, there's like some built-in sort of issues with that right because i mean when you're uh, training and fighting in 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 the prairies, for instance, like these are fundamentally white male spaces. And I remember my last fight, um, me and my mom, like we smudged outside the building firsthand. We did a little ceremony just to kind of like go in with good things, you know, wish my opponents, their coaches, my coaches, you know, just express gratitude, blessings, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, as we were walking into the ring, you know, I was like, I held my, I always have an eagle feather with me. And so I was, you know, I held it above my head, my head. And, um, you could just almost like hear the pin drop in the whole room when I did that. It was just like, how could this indigenous person dare to be indigenous in this space kind of thing? And um, and so certainly, you know, like that mot- motivates a guy, you know, to want to perform well and do well. And, um, you know, and, and I suppose when I had that, uh, when I was supposed to fight the British guy, it actually fell through um, like literally like half hour before the fight was supposed to start. I'm sitting there at this mall in bangkok and it was like an outdoor ring and there was like there was television there it was like it was quite a for my very first fight in thailand like that was a it was a it was a big platform and i was quite like i was ready for it you know i trained and i was quite you know excited to get in there but really disappointed that it ultimately fell through the next day i was just like well you know i might as well make the best of it like i I thought i just wasn't gonna fight at all at that on that trip because i actually had to fly home um in about a week and you know the time that it takes to organize it plan it and all that kind of stuff i just you know i didn't know much at that time so i just assumed it wouldn't happen at all so the next day i get up train in the morning just you know like things are going on as normal and um you know, Master Toddy comes out and he says, like, I got to fight for you. Stop training right now. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're going to get in a, you're going to get in a vehicle right now and you're going to drive three hours to Northern Bangkok and um, you're going to have a fight. And so I did. And it was like actually under this bridge and the only people really in the crowd were Buddhist monks, um, a bunch of kids. 
And yeah, I, I ended up fighting an actual Thai guy. He had like 30 fights to his name or something like that, which my coach didn't tell me at that time. He just told me he was amateur. And that was just like, I had no idea about what like the logistics of fighting in Thailand was like at that point in time. I was just like, just put me in a ring and, you know, let me go kind of thing. And um, yeah, so the the first fight, you know, like I won and it was like, certainly there was the elation of winning, which, you know, as anyone who's fought in the ring knows, there's, you know, nothing quite like it. But um, yeah, like as the years have waned and I've started to unpack, you know, that attitude, the attitudes that kind of brought me into that space and certainly how I was representing that experience to other people. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, it's an unsavory aspect of it that I think, you know, it's, it's worth un- exploring now because I hear that certainly with a lot of folks who choose to go fight in Thailand, right. They are choose to go train in Thailand. They kind of see beating Thai people as sort of like this badge of honor. And I think that's, that's, it's, it's problematic for all sorts of reasons. One, obviously, you know, if you understand the history of, of Thailand and certainly the, you know, the history of U.S. imperialism in Thailand, it's like, you know, the West just treats a lot of Southeast Asia like this. And in, in Thailand, it's it's no different. It was like my experience. It was just like, and certainly I had this attitude to certainly with a lot of the people I either shared training spaces with or, um, um, you know, certainly I, I felt this was especially true with fighters from America. Um, I, I shared a camp at Master Toddy's with quite a few fighters and some of them were from like uh, from North Carolina and some were from Dakota or South Dakota. And it was like, it was like, it was quite obvious to me at that time, like Americans were a bit different in terms of how they approached it. Like they were quite like, I mean, they're all in the same basket as most Western folks who travel out to Thailand, but it was especially pronounced. I noticed because like a couple of the folks that I was training with a couple of the Americans I was training at master toddies, it was just like, it was like the, like what really struck me right off the hop off the bat was just like the frothy sort of love for American military like that was like I found that like it was it's a trope I know like going into that space but it was like suddenly it was in front of me and I saw suddenly these Americans kind of like vacillating as if like their presence there and their approach to dealing with Thai folks was dessert because they're American and like you know they're 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 peaking right you know like they're um they've earned that ability to be just complete dickbags to people and to sort of just to sort of stew in that justification was something that really um, was quite, yeah, was, 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 was quite off-putting at that point in time. But I mean, like, I suppose it, it made me uncomfortable to a certain extent because um, it was really hitting home that, that, that idea that, you know, Thai people were just there to be, um, to be used. And I suppose it made me a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, if I'm being honest with you, I think I carried a bit of that attitude as well. And so it's, 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 I think it's healthy for a lot of people who choose to go to train in Thailand to explore their motivations for doing so. And especially if your motivation is just to go there to be the Thai person, I, I really, you know, question that, you know. Was it similar to training in the prairies where most of the foreigners were cishet white men from the West? Uh, yeah, it's, it's very similar. Like, you know, the, ver- the very first camp I went to, Chinarach, was it was all white men from Europe. Um, it was like, you know, it was pretty, you know, it was, it was pretty uh, non-diverse. And, this, and the same thing's been true pretty much for every Thai camp I've been to, outside of maybe perhaps the last one I was at. Back in 2018, I went to uh, Sitsong Pino in Phuket. And uh, 
there was quite a few that was actually the most diverse I've ever seen it. Um, you know, there was there was like near gender parity, all sorts of different body types, sizes. Um, it was yeah, it was it was quite uh, it was quite nice to see actually. A note to our listeners: if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi, or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Yeah, I definitely am going to second a lot of what uh, Mike said, mainly just because like, my main motivation for going to Thailand, one was really just to travel, very similar. you know. Even though I grew up in a wealthier area, doesn't mean that like I had the type of wealth that like a lot of my classmates and the people I grew up with, like both my parents had to work a lot in order to provide my siblings and I the life that we had. So it wasn't like shit wasn't easy. And when I uh, when I was doing Muay Thai, I really my goal was to go to Thailand and I wanted to stay like long term because I really wanted to like fight in the stadiums as a youth. Like I was watching like Sanchai, Buikao, Singdam, uh, who else? Like Pet Bonju. I was watching uh, Yadvicha. I was watching a lot of those guys growing up and I was like 13, 15. And I'm like, yeah, I want to fight at this level too. And that sounds good on paper. There's nothing wrong with aspiring to fight in the stadiums and win a stadium title. But because of the culture surrounding like Westerners who travel to Muay Thai in Thailand, Rather than that being like something like, yeah, let's get you to develop skills to win a stadium title, it's they it's automatic. It almost like starts getting smoothed out and denigrated into like, yeah, I just want to go to Thailand and you know, I just want to beat up on some ties to show how good I really am. And that's what that eventually morphs into for a lot of people. And same with Mike, you know, even though my main goal for going to Thailand was to improve myself, I'd be I'd just be lying if I said that I initially thought that like, yeah, you know, if I can beat a Thai, that means I'm I'm legit at this because that's just ingrained in the culture of Muay Thai in the West period. And to assume that's just going to like, I'm, I'm the special person that that doesn't affect. That's just, that's just ridiculous. Despite my upbringing and where I'm coming from, you know, there's a lot of people who don't, who, who don't rock with a lot of right white supremacist shit. But because if they, if you live in a society that kind of glorifies and gives a pass to a lot of white supremacists, you might believe some shit that is really problematic because it's like a fish being in water. You don't know you're in water until somebody poisons it out to you because why would you even think about it at that point? But I really think it's important to like just take in a just assess like where like not only where you're traveling to, but why you're doing it. And even though I was way more political at 2020 than I was like beforehand in terms of my training, I wasn't as political as I am now. And even like how I viewed Thailand in 2020 is much different 
than I view now, which I'm happy that I went there. And my experience there was honestly great. I really needed that at my point at that point in my life. Cause I've always, that was my dream to go to Thailand and just train and not have any responsibilities to worry about, especially I had, I was almost getting ready to get my associate's degree. You know, I've been in and out of school. My fighting career kind of went down the shitter. I wasn't doing that well in a lot of fights. So I figured whether I fight or not, I do got to make this trip. Because if I don't make it now, then I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And I learned so much going there. And I wish I would have stayed there longer had it not been for the pandemic to really just immerse myself in the country and really learn. But even while I was there, I realized very quickly, and especially it was funny, I realized after my fight, even though I lost my fight, that's the funny part, I lost my fight. But then afterwards, even though I lost, I'm like, you know, it's crazy how I viewed like fighting a Thai person. And the Thai that I fought was really experienced. At the time, I was only at like 29, 30, I think like 29, 28 fights, like amateur fights. But uh, I believe they were an older Thai gentleman who had almost about a little over 100 fights. So big experience gap. But the fight wasn't, I didn't get completely dominated the whole fight. And I was in the fight, even though I got dropped in the first round, I was in the fight the whole time. So ironically, after that experience, I was like, man, you know, back home, people make such a big deal about fighting a Thai. But it's, there's good ties, there's average ties. There's bad tie fighters. There's great tie fighters. There's all-time great tie fighters. I mean, it, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but it reminds me of how, like, you know, even the most well-meaning white person, well-meaning, whatever that even means, uh, well, they look at, like, a tall black dude. Oh, this guy must play basketball. It's kind of that mentality. Oh, if I could beat this guy, I'm really good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, dude, I beat a black dude. (laughs) Exactly. That's how good I am. That is exactly what it is. Even like in boxing, the whole Great White Hope thing, you see that a lot. Like the Great White Hope trope in boxing is kind of like almost evolved itself in a different way in Muay Thai, where rather than looking for like the Great White Hope to beat like, I don't know, like a Jack Johnson or what name, whatever all time great black boxer that was dominating motherfuckers at the time. Whoever it will be, but like rather than that, it's more so like we got to go to where they're at and beat them at their game because you know at the end of the day we're the real superior ones. We got to put them in their place. They won't be that explicit about that, but it's it's kind of that same mentality when it's like it's funny to me personally. Like it's problematic, but it's also funny because despite how many foreigners specifically americans and i'm as i'm speaking about this from an american centric concept and i'm glad you brought this up mike because that confirmed that confirmed what i thought after my experience in thailand and that just gave me some confirmation that like it's funny to me that americans think they have figured out the game of muay thai when these motherfuckers haven't even figured out the game of mma like you know what I'm saying? They haven't even figured out boxing. <laughs> like, yet you 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 all of a sudden you've got you've got it figured out in a country where you're not you're not even gonna bother to learn the language. I was only there for a month, and I'm like learning basic terminology, and I'm talking to people who have been there for years who are like, "Oh wow, that's cool that you're speaking the language." I don't even like want to bother to learn Thai, and I bet you money this is the same motherfucker at home selling people. Who are immigrants here? 
are like, oh, they need to learn how to speak English. It's, just, it's even like the whole dichotomy between like an immigrant and an expat. Like, what it what actually is the difference between an immigrant and an expat? Like, let's really examine that because somehow in like Muay Thai, every foreigner is an expat, and then. I see in the news, like, ah, oh, this illegal immigrant was called in Thailand. And it always happens to be some dark-skinned individual, whether it be, like, a Nigerian man or, like, an Indian person. But the the foreign, the, the white Europeans and the Americans, they're expats because they, they got money. That's what that means. Like, so I noticed a lot of that while I was over there. Like, just the term, even, like, little terminology things. And to continue this conversation, to keep it consistent with the topic, I remember... I was, I had this brought up to me and this is, I'm not going to shit on any one individual because they weren't trying to say it in an offensive manner because these were people of color telling me this. These, these were not white people telling me this are actually people of color who were trying to look out for my best interests, but it exposed something to me that really like, re- I had been thinking about a lot and I think about it more and more now that I have time to reflect and I'm more politically educated. And uh, I remember when I was in Thailand, right now I have shorter hair. I got like a smaller afro growing out. But when I was in Thailand, I had, uh, dre- I had locks, dreadlocks. They weren't, super, they weren't super long at the time, but they were long enough. They were getting to the point where I could like tie it back, right? And I know before I was going there, a couple of people alluded to me. I'm not going to name names, but a couple of people alluded to me. It's like, you know, have you thought about like getting the haircut before you go? And I'm like, what the fuck would I get a haircut before I go? What's the point? And I'm thinking, you know, me, my innocent ass thinking, I'm like, well, probably concerned that it's like too hot out there, you know? And it was very hot out there. Probably would have been wise to cut my hair just for that. But that's not what they were concerned about. They were concerned about it because they were like, you know, you know, they might not like let you fight at like certain stadiums if you have like longish hair or they might like kind of look at you funny. And it's like, oh, I'm like, oh. It's funny that I'm like, I'm like, so basically I can't be too black out there, basically, which is very funny to me because while I was out there, the, uh, the ties who were the nicest to me, a lot of the ties were nice to me too. I will say that like, it was, I love being out there as far as getting to actually talk to and like mingle with actual Thai fighters, residents of Thailand, like. I definitely wish I could have stayed longer because I learned so much, especially just as far as like the international context. And but the dark, it was funny how uh, if you're, for black listeners, there's a thing that black people do. We call it like the nod, where when we see each other in a public space, where we're the only like two or three people there, but we all see each other and we're like looking at each other, like, "Yeah, what's up, man?" Or like, "How you doing? How you doing, brother?" Like stuff like that. A lot of black people do that in public when we're around white spaces. But ironically, a lot of the dark skin ties kind of did that with me. They were they were going out of their way to make me feel comfortable because even like something at like whiteness is valued a lot out there, not necessarily in the same way as America, but a lot of this shit is imposed because of fucking foreigners. Because Thailand is a country in Southeast Asia. A lot of these people are darker than me. I'm black. They're, a lot of these people are darker than me. Yet, if you watch the TV, a lot of these actors, models, and whatnot are pale, like really pale, like paler than people who live in a very sunny place should be. And I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense. Most of the times I've seen are like pretty like brown or dark skin. That's weird. We've actually talked about that in previous episodes about how Western tourism affects a country 
as far as colorism. And I guess from colorism, white supremacy, like we talked about that with the history of Cuba, but also like Latin America, South Asia, where because of the tourists, you put the lightest skinned people at the front of the house, right? There's this idea of the front of the house and the back of the house. It's not because you think that they'll like that more. It's because they're demanding that. They want the lighter skinned locals, natives to be at the front. Those are the people they want to deal with. Colorism might already exist, but that exacerbates the colorism there. 100%. That then starts elevating certain groups over other groups. But not only that, then it also changes like the local, even dynamics of what is considered beautiful. All of those things starts getting affected by Western tourism. Yeah, it was, it was like, it was making me think of like, even just going shopping, like, you know, when you're going out into the malls and, uh, and, you know, when you confront, um, like, for instance, like, like, I like lotion, I lotion up as much as I fucking can. Oh, I know there, I know where this is getting ready to go. Yeah. And like going to Tesco and you go into the store or any supermarket or any pharmacy or whatever, and you're just trying to get some lotion that doesn't fucking have skin whitening agents in it is like, fucking impossible and i'm sitting here i'm like i ain't going fucking lighter on my skin like i like my brown skin i ain't like if anything i want it to get darker i don't want it to get lighter and i was just sort of immediately sort of like guffawed by like how much of their skin beauty products that kind of whole area of commerce is just shaped by a desire to be white and yeah it was it was really just like it was like even without like kind of the political awareness I had have now, like even back then, I was like, this is fucked up. I have seen some articles where it's like attributed some of like the beauty standards of not just Thailand, but like Asia in general to Korea. But the thing is, like what they don't realize is those like white <laughs> beauty standards that Korea has came from the U.S. specifically. It came from not only from the GIs, but also Korea has a history of sex trafficking, sex tourism, the comfort women stations never closed down after Japan left the U.S. and its proxies kept them open. So these U.S. military doctors created these programs to, this is their words, to deorientalize the women. They purposely wanted lighter skinned women with bigger eyes, basically making them more Western. And then that became kind of like a standard for Korea. And from there, because the West valued that type of beauty so much, then of course that spread to other parts of Asia. So people are like, oh, no, no, this isn't a white thing. This is like an Asian thing. Yeah, we're just getting it for Koreans. And it's like, motherfucker, Korea got her, not even from Europe. <laughs> they got it from white Americans, right? And specifically, it wasn't even accidental. It was an actual project to deorientalize women. And especially, I don't even want to say sex workers because that makes it sound like they had some kind of consent in the process, right? It was sexual slavery and they wanted the sexually enslaved Asian women who were still enslaved after Japan. They wanted to keep them like that. And then they wanted to now like control even how they looked. And then this even connects to like the adoption industrial complex because it's like, oh, now you have kids. We don't want that around. So like, let's illegally send them off to the US and Europe and whatnot. And there's like a whole truth and reconciliation commission happening about that too. But you know, sometimes I hear people who went to Korea and it's like, no, I went to Korea, man. That's a Korean thing, right? That's not from the US. And it's like, dude, and even some Koreans think that. They don't know the origins of how these things started. And I was just, and I was just thinking, like, you know, to further that point, like even today, you know, certainly now, it's, it also like connotates not just, you know, um, 
you know, the, the, the social capital that comes with, you know, a person's proximity to whiteness, but also like it signifies class as well, because from what I understand, like, you know, if generally if you're darker skinned, it probably means you're working outdoors in a lot of cases um, in, in, in agricultural industries. And, you know, there's like the associations, you know, if you're browner, you're, 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 you're of a lower, you know, class, I suppose. And so like, yeah, that, that, that also complicates it a little bit as well, because, you know, certainly when you kind of see how people sort of gravitate towards, you know, wanting to look white and be white, you know, it's just to signify as well, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not that person as well. So it creates these interesting internal sort of divisions within Thai culture as well. Colorism is real, which is the uplifting of lighter skinned people of the same ethnic group. But colorism is also used to harm reduce racism. When you look more closely at the colorism spectrum, you often find rich Chinese who fled communism on one end and South Asians on the other, or European settlers and rich descendants and South Asians or native people or Afro-Latinos. It's still often racism. But again, with the Western gaze, it's easy to put everyone in the same bucket and paint it as colorism within the same ethnic group. Also, light-skinned foreigners and settlers create a new pole or aspiration for colorism, which is what I mean by it also makes colorism worse because foreign whiteness means power and privilege. To quote Frantz Fanon, to be rich is to be white. To be white is to be rich. But Mike, something you spoke to earlier about how the West comes to Thailand, or maybe you could even say to the East, with this mentality that the East is theirs to use. And this is often known as Orientalism. But from your standpoint, you're probably also very familiar with the noble savage trope. Did you notice any of that? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I found this, like, there's a lot to unpack here, but I found that the most obviously that comes to my mind when people think about me as a, as a Muay Thai fighter is the names that they choose to come up with to give me like a fight name. And it's always something like that conveys something like mystical native person, you know, like the shaman or the, the, you know, it's just something that was sort of like, that owes itself to sort of tropes that people think about native people. And um, certainly that sort of, um, you know, carries itself in terms of even terms of how people like treat you. Right. Um, and it's interesting being native in Thailand for lots of reasons because how Thai people look at you, you can immediately tell. It's like distilled through the prism of white Western gaze, of the white Western gaze. And that creates like issues right off the hop. It was kind of like bi-directional, right? Because you also had a bit of that to them and they had that towards you. Totally, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, right? Like, um, and as I was sort of, you know, navigating that space, People often came up to me curious because the first thing people would do, often Thai people come up to do, they speak Thai to me. Like this racial ambiguity <laughs> that I have, you know, meant that often I was confronted with a lot of situations where, you know, this happens like if I go to the like, local, uh, to, like local Mexican grocery, right? Like, you know, it's, as soon as I walk in, it's like, hola, and it's like, sorry, it's like, I'm Cree. But, you know, anyways, it's just, it, it creates like these interesting sort of interactions that, uh, you know, I, I tend to look, you know, a lot more favorably on now. But back then, you know, when I met people in Thailand, you know, first, often the first thing is like, oh, like, what are you? You know, like, they need to put me in a box, first of all. It's like, are you like, like, they just didn't know, right? They knew you weren't white. Yeah, yeah. They knew I wasn't <laughs> white. 
But like to see their brains short circuit to try and figure out, you know, okay, what area of the global south do I need to put you in? And um, and so the uh, the 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 interesting thing is like the only way I could convey like who I was to people in Thailand, I realized was almost like impossible because they had no proxy, you know, to understand native folks outside of even Western media, right? Like the things that they had. I most most often I was most often I found like I was the very first native person a lot of Thai people met. And unfortunately, you know, they informed that experience. Like I informed their my experience interacting with them with, you know, my predispositions. They came in with theirs. But unfortunately, um, you know, especially even in 2008, certainly, like, you know, media representations of Indigenous people were poor at best. And certainly when you go into that space, like, you know, they're coming in with like, you know, assuming that you're just coming straight off the set of Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner, right? Like, like I've seen some pretty offensive things that people have like said to me, Thai people have said to me, but like, but I don't really like harbor any sort of ill will against them because like they're literally only using what, proxies they have to try to give some substance to who I am, you know? And, um, and it's like, yeah, like that was, that was really challenging. Like, you know, trying to like convey to people who I was as a person and where I came from, you know, my standpoint as a Cree person was pretty much impossible to convey to, to a lot of people in Thailand, just because, you know, like they didn't, they just didn't know anything about native people really. From their framework, trying to understand a person without a country because the country was taken, right? Or the land was taken, I should say. Then from your positionality, really going to a lot of places in the world, that's going to be harder for people to understand because it's like, that is something that happened to you. When your land is taken now, the rest of the world will have a hard time placing you because you don't have a place. Even that term, placing you, you need a place, but these settlers took the place. So then now you'll forever be an alien of the planet. And I very rarely like to tell people I'm Canadian, you know, like that comes with all sorts of baggage that it like even saying it just feels wrong, you know. And uh, but, you know, when you're when you're traveling overseas, it's like it's shorthand, right? Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm Canadian because I don't want to have to go through like, you know, a 40 minute lecture on the complicated political dynamics of like being uh, being indigenous in a settler colonial space, right, or a settler settler occupied space, rather, and um, and yeah, it's 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 hard to sort of be indigenous in places that have little to no understanding of who you are. And like you made a really good point, you know, like when you're like occupied people, which is currently kind of what we are, right? you know, we're we're sitting in in a territory that you know, despite the rhetoric around treaties and like you know this amicable exchange of of knowledge and resources for the benefit of sharing of land, you know that's such a romanticized like idea. But really, the reality is it's 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 horrendous oppression and occupation of our territories that were never ceded, and um, it's it it makes it difficult for people to sort of grasp that because like you know you, you already can kind of see through like. You just you kind of hit the nail right on the head, um, Sam. Like, if you don't have a country to call home, people have no latch or no hook to sort of tether you to, right? You know, and that that makes it, yeah, that makes it really, you know, difficult to sort of travel overseas being indigenous. Because, like, I was just remembered a trip I went to. Um, uh, I have a Scottish uncle, and the reason for that is a long story I won't get into. But um, my last trip overseas to Scotland, you know, we were 
hanging around this uh this, this mutual friend of my uncle's and it was just like right off the right off the bat when as soon as she found out i was native she was just like oh like so do you, you do like sweat lodges and stuff, right? Can you like, can you teach me how to do that? And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, first of all, that would create like that. There's so much wrong with that. Like there were so many ethical issues with how that statement was even conveyed. Like that would never fly back home. Like there's, you're breaching so much protocol and in, in even just stating like that. But, you know, that's just something you got to sort of contend with being native traveling overseas is that these these racist exchanges that you have to deal with are just sort of part and parcel come with come with the territory, I guess. Especially when you're not in the West, kind of like what you were explaining with your origin and your background about being tied to the land, like you're part of the land, right? That's the framework for a lot of people, right? They see people as being part of the land or tied to the land in some way. So when they find people who are like, they don't recognize the land, never never been told about this land or you don't have a land, it's harder to understand. Even though it's like pointed back at you, it's like that's kind of also how you perceive things as well, like historically, right? But then like I think for Europe, they're not so tied to the land. It's like wherever they go, it starts becoming their land or to the example you gave of Americans, they come with this American bubble. Wherever they go, America comes with them. So it's like a very different framework, a very different standpoint from how they understand it. So then if they say the same kind of stuff, they're coming from a different place where it's like, they're not trying to like place you to a land or whatever. They're just like turning you into this cartoon character. Yes. That is theirs to cartoonify, that they own your likeness and image. (laughs) Totally. But the other question then to that idea of like the noble savage is, have you seen that with the foreigners placed the other way towards the Thai people? As like this, oh, they're so beautiful, this beautiful culture. But then, yeah, their kids are warriors. <laughs> they're fighting since they're three years old. Oh, man. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's like, oh, my God. Like, there's so much to talk about there. Um, Dude. Yeah, like, it, it, I think it, it's, it speaks to the same vein of thought, like, um, that we were talking about earlier in that sense that, you know, the, you know, Orientalism and like you know viewing Asian bodies as 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 something to be disposed of or used and like that you know like that approach like um, and and I think romanticism is sort of like the other side of the same coin so to speak right like I remember you know there's like this a lot of folks go to Thailand not to train um, martial arts and that kind of surprised me you know but a lot of folks go out there to do like these wellness programs. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know the type, man. Like, you, like you're you're sitting in a restaurant, and then you're looking over, and then you see this person, and then like they go out there just because they have this idea of what Thai culture can offer them, and it's purely extractionary, right? Like they're not going there to like contribute to the country in any meaningful way. They're coming there to strip mine their spirituality because well, one, they don't understand it to begin with, and two it's speaking to some essential lack um, that, you know, that like white culture has like built into it. Uh, and, you know, that's the, the attitude people have, especially I notice like, you know, the propensity for people to go to Buddhist temples is something I really bothers me. Um, I, and I like, I'm trying to like, and I suppose, you know, I, I, could, I fall into, I fell into some of those similar um, trappings, but like, I already had a propensity for, for spirituality. Being Indigenous there, I felt there was a lot of, um, 
corollaries within Buddhism that was really sort of attracting me to learn more about it. So I spent some time um, trying to learn more about Buddhism while I was in Thailand. And it was such a, you know, it was an enriching experience um, trying to, you know, take in the books, trying to have conversations, trying to understand, you know, what I found like quite rich concepts, but like seeing white spiritualists come into that place and then just sort of in a highly sort of commodified environment in a very extractive kind of manner. Um, it's sort of, you know, it renders Thai people like almost like these mythological figures, you know, that are devoid of, you know, the complexity of what human beings are really all about. And it sort of robs you of a lot of things. And it's, yeah, it kind of, it, it makes me feel like that's that noble savage thing. It's like people see you as that, that idea, that character that they have in their head and it completely robs you of your interiority as a, as a human subject. And, um, and I think certainly that carries into like, you know, people's attitudes towards um, child fighting, which is, you know, such a, such a problematic thing. Uh, you know, people will say that, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, like, you know, somehow like, you know, Thai people are this sort of like, I, just, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, like take this with a grain of salt, but I remember hearing something um, and this, you know, this is a bit of a, a historical statement. I know it is, but um, I remember hearing something a Thai person told me once a while back and it was like, you know, oh, we're the country that was never conquered, right? And I think some people have that like misconception about Thailand. It's like, it was a country that somehow got to where it is today without imperialism, which is interesting. And, um, and, and yeah, it, it's messed up. And so anyways, like when people have this like, you know, attitude towards Thai culture, their people, their spirituality, and it extends to, you know, how they even look at their children. Because, you know, when when you see like, you see an immediate contradiction when you go watch child fighting in Thailand. Like the card I fought on my very first fight in Thailand, there was like, it was almost all kids who were fighting before me. And um, so you're immediately confronted with the contradiction of seeing something you know you, is wrong, right? especially when you consider like the gambling aspect about it. That's what, you know, was, was really creates an immoral situation. And um, it, may, it, it, it it really puts you in like this weird spot. Like I remember that first feeling I had when I was watching it. And here I am participating in this event that has like this really, you know, shady thing going on. And um, I think a lot of Westerners can shrug it off because it's just like, well, Thai bodies and Thai people and Thai culture are just sort of like these, like they're just, they're not humans. Like, you know, they're just sort of others that are somehow, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, the beasts of burdens or like the noble savage, you know, like they're just, their bodies are built for, for violence or on the other side of things, like they see them as like these magical things, you know, that um, people can travel to Thailand and sort of get this, you know, spiritual sort of import from like i don't know i'm not explaining myself very well get the best hospitality get the best massages <laughs> right get pampered they're the masters of pampering and the masters of violence literally saying the quiet part out loud yeah i mean when you mentioned wellness and spirituality another thing i wanted to mention is often people go there and i've known people in la who do this they go to thailand to go to some wellness spiritual retreat that's all based around yoga and they don't see anything funny about that because they're like, oh, yoga, you know, and Thailand, it's all from that general area. They don't even know that these are like different things from different regions. And they also go there for yoga plus surfing. And it's like <laughs> to Thailand for that. Right. And none of that sounds weird to them because to them, they just put anything, even I would say like 
native people get thrown into this bucket, even though they're indigenous to North America, right? It's like, they're all the non-Occidental. They're all in the non-white bucket. So it's like the yoga, surfing. You've seen this in spiritual practice. They'll take like South Asian practices mixed in with like bastardized indigenous practices. And it's like all the same bucket. It's all the same shit, right? So for them, there is no contradiction to go to Thailand <laughs> for uh, LA style yoga and surfing, right? Along yeah. with like the best massages and like your keto, whatever diet, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's like, you know, they're saying namaste and burning sage at the same time. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, good Lord. To add to that point too, I'll do you one better, Sam. There are fucking foreigners. I'm not going to name any names. I don't even need to name any names because we know who they are. There are foreigners who are running Muay Thai retreats in Thailand and charging people for white people doing this in Thailand. It's like, how exploitative can you fucking get? Like, how low can you get? And the worst part is that if I were to bring this up in the mainstream, I'd be the one to get shat on the most and be like, oh, you know, you're just hating. You're not, gr-. he's like, you're just hating on somebody who's trying to make the living off their dream. It's like, dude, fuck you, man. Like, <laughs> you move to a cheap country with a cheap cost of living where everybody exists to please your white ass. And then, and not only do you do that, you have the audacity to start a business there involving their national sport and you're extracting money away from them from the shit that you learned from the Thai, your Thai trainers, the Thai, like the Thai fights, the shit that you did out there. Now you're profiting off of it in their own country. I mean, how American can you get? Traditional knowledge, right? They're using traditional knowledge for their own benefit. Ridiculous. Yeah. Calling out the colonizer for colonizing is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a quick, it's a quick recipe for, uh, uninvited, uh, shit coming into your life, man. Oh yeah. I mean, they don't even call it colonizing anymore. It's just hustle and grind. Oh yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. another thing i want to bring up right is going to thailand isn't just about the muay thai isn't just about the wellness and spirituality right but there's also the sex tourism side for it which even people there for muay thai or even wellness might participate in right i was watching this interview with michael bisbing and robert whitaker and michael bisbing was saying every time he goes to thailand he always sees white guys from Australia there. And then he's like, some of my friends in Australia, man, they go to Thailand. They don't ever come back. And then Robert Whitaker is like, yeah, they're not just there for Muay Thai. They're there for other stuff. And they just started like looking at each other and giggling and, you know, what they were talking about. That some of their friends, some of the people they know are really like addicted to or obsessed with the sex tourism there and they just can't help themselves. But they don't see it as exploitive. They just see it as just normal. Just because it's normalized does not mean it's good, right? And so amongst the people they know, that is normalized, right? So to kind of like bring this all back together and connect the dots, everything you're talking about, Mike, and even you, Ron, right, is this Western conquest, conquer the men and then sexually conquer the women. And for sexual imperialism, they can watch the children fight and they can even sleep with the children. They can conquer them too, which is a colonial process, defeat the men, and the women and children are the spoils. So these are the not-so-pleasant side of things that's normalized and never brought up by Western tourists. But going back to Ron's initial comments about like you're bragging about or talking about the worst parts as being the beauty of Thailand, right? Like oftentimes those things, those exploitive things 
are the things people brag about as being like the great thing or the beautiful thing about Thailand? Yeah, no, like that's like, I think it's important to bring up like um, when I first went to Thailand, I didn't really, uh, maybe it was just like circumstance or just, you know, maybe just in terms of how I was navigating the the country at that time. Um, I didn't really see this, the, the sex tourism side of things um, on my first trip out there. I was really kind of like, you know, cloistered in, in my, in my camp. And um, I had a lot to do with the fact that I was just like pretty much broke that whole trip. And so I couldn't really afford to go out. But, um, but my second trip, um, uh, certainly when I stayed in Bangkok, it was like, it was, it was, I've, I kind of struggling to find the words. Um, when I first seen, uh, like this old fucking white guy. Um, he must have been in his like fucking fifties, sixties, and I swear, like he was just—he was walking, holding hands with this girl who was probably no more than like she looked honestly like ten or twelve to me. Um, but it was like stuff I kind of knew to prepare myself for. Uh, things that I kind of said, like I always knew, like oh yeah, sex tourism is an issue in Thailand. I knew there, I know there are child sex um slaves in thailand i know that that's an issue um i was kind of like wholly still unprepared to see it in person because i always thought it was kind of like more clandestine but then I, when i walked in certain areas like a uh, pataya for instance i was it was just sort of like in your face and i was just kind of like this this can't be how it is and without when i when i'm and I'm quite certain, like every instance where I saw, you know, this huge age disparity was always some greasy old white guy, um, you know, having some very young Thai girl on his arm. And it was like, and I saw that quite often. And like, I thought it was just more of a trope, but then I realized it was actually a real thing and not just a real thing. It was like hugely, well, obviously it's problematic, but it like, it came really to help me sort of better characterize or understand you know why people chose to go to that country because like i was going into that place with rose-colored glasses too and um you know seeing the seedy underbelly of bangkok really sort of um and 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 its outliers in pataya for instance like really sort of um you know it's it's it it, it's 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 easy to talk about these things in abstract terms, right? Especially if you're from the West, you know, we can read about these things, we can understand them, we can watch documentaries, and we can kind of like, you know, begin to like understand these issues. But when you see it in person, it leaves a it leaves a weird imprint on you that um like I I could still like I could still remember like the feeling of the air on my skin when I saw that. I can still like viscerally remember. And I know like brain science says, you know, when you're undergoing like, you know, like really intense things, like your brain sort of switches into this mode where like you can sort of um like recall a lot of things about that particular event. And I was just thinking about that. Like it was such a, I don't know, it was such a disturbing thing to to kind of see. And then like afterwards, I saw it everywhere, right? You know, like it's hard not to see um, the sex tourism industry in Thailand. And then, you know, when you're walking around like Phuket, for instance, you know, and you walk into sort of like these, not like red light districts, but they're areas where, you know, like they have massage houses where, you know, like that where prostitutions um, where it's going on. And like, and it's, you know, it's, 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 a lot of Westerners kind of coming in and out of there, frequenting that place. And it's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's something it's, 
it's hard to sort of prepare yourself for. But like when you're traveling overseas, when you're traveling to Thailand, it's it's something like you know you can do your best to steal yourself against it. But when you see it in person, it was um it was fucking really disturbing to see, man. And like I'm still trying to like you know I don't know. It's 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 a difficult thing, especially for a person like myself, like you know who is you know I'm a I'm a second generation residential school survivor, you know, the issues uh, that indigenous people had to confront when all our families were taken away, put into like, you know, these residential schools and like the amount of abuse that occurred between adults and children was a really triggering thing for me to have to go through in Thailand. It, like, it deeply affected me in, 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 in really in not so great ways. And so in my experience being, being native in Thailand and kind of confronted with the reality of sex tourism was, was um, yeah, it was really bitter pill to, to have to or it was not not the right way to say it but it was just a really difficult reality to have to confront with and and more importantly too as we were kind of talking today and kind of unpacking sort of our assumptions and our attitudes and especially the gaze with which i look to thai people it's hard not to kind of see like uh, yeah like you know it's 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 i guess what i'm trying to say is it's really important to like unpack your motivations we've been kind of saying that consistently throughout this episode but like i think a lot of people can still like think that they're going to Thailand for the right reasons and still be and still kind of fall into a trap where they think they're justified and you know participating in that industry because like you'll tell yourself convincing little like narratives about like oh well you know you're just helping them out or you know they're just kind of like you know they need money and stuff like that so some people like will still participate in the industry on the basis of altruistic aims right not (laughs) unpacking that even in you know unpacking the problems behind that itself you know Effective altruism, right? Which we yeah. all learn from like Sam Bankman Freed and FTX and all these like scams. <laughs> it's all yeah. fraud and it's just like a rationalization for exploitation and abuse. And my thing is, we're all coming from different positionalities, but we're all non white, right? I'm coming from a position as a Korean person. We have Black American, we have a native person from Treaty Six, but what stands out to me are the tourists. It's the Westerners who go there, but never speak about the actual realities of their tourism, as if it's all a win-win situation. Basically, my indictment is on them, because it's like, how much bypassing do they do? Maybe they don't see it as often, but they're aware it exists, or maybe they do see it, but then it's like, they somehow bypass it and don't see it. It's like, they see with their eyes examples of Western male exploitation of Thai children even. And somehow when they come back, it's like, that's not part of their experience at all. They somehow did not see it. It just bypassed their brains. So to them, it's like, what exploitation of Thailand by Western people? What are you talking about? They've never been conquered. So then what is happening with them, right? What's wrong with you for you to like not acknowledge that? Like, how are you dealing with this information, right? Like, how do you go there and talk about the beauty and all this stuff? And like, you're so defensive of any criticism of Thailand, but we're not criticizing Thailand. Pay attention. We're criticizing you. What's up with you? (laughs) You're seeing the material conditions. You're seeing the exploitation by the West. And you're like denying that it happens or not even rationalizing. It's somehow like it bypasses you and you don't even comprehend it. Honestly, they're just lying, Sam. I'm going to be real. (laughs) They did see it. They're bypassing. They did see it. (laughs) It's still a point like like you're mentioning right now. I'm not even going to because you're 100% right. Because I feel the exact same way. And I'm like, look, man, I get 
that I'm just going to view things differently, especially as a black person who grew up in America. But there are certain things that you like, bro, there is no way that you stayed in Thailand for as long as you did and did not see any of that. So you're just special. You're just an angel. You didn't do shit wrong. And the thing about it is that stands out, right? So how are you not mentioning it every day? <laughs> how is this not brought up more often? It's when you read the pamphlets of like going to Thailand, you see like, you know, pictures of beautiful beaches and, you know, good food. And like, you know, you have like this, you know, for the martial artists, you know, who want to go out there and you got the best training camps in the world. And it's all sort of great. But like immediately, like it's thrown upon you, like that immediate contradiction and like how people cope with that tells a lot about their attitudes and what they're bringing to the country because i think for people to see it as a problem is to admit a lot of things that a lot of people who go to thailand have will just completely either deny or obfuscate or just outright fucking lie about right like you know i was talking earlier about like the fact that you know when i was training as uh, master toddy there was a lot of americans training there and it was like i immediately fucking knew which conversations to avoid like the plague because (laughs) <laughs> it was very obvious to me that these guys were just like, like three out of four of them were like former or current military. And so like, I was just like, okay, that's a landmine. Don't fucking go there. Um, and it was like, to admit that you see these issues is to admit the West's complicity in creating the conditions that allow it to happen. And I think like, that's just a bridge too far for most people. So it's like, we play this, selective amnesia when it comes to seeing the more unsavory aspects of Thai culture or Thai living. And unfortunately, you know, it's the the the, the shitty aspects about it are fundamentally fueled by, well, capitalism and, and white supremacy, right? Like there there's white tourists traveling to Thailand with the explicit intention to participate in the sex tourism industry. And even if they're going there for Muay Thai, let's not delude ourselves into thinking that when you brought up that conversation earlier, you know, with Michael Bisping, was that a lot of people, yeah, they go there for the for the fighting. But I mean, really, that's it's kind of like secondary to the need to want to participate in the sex tourism industry as well. I mean, it's all part of masculinity, right? Totally. I mean, they're going there, especially the men are going there for these like toxic masculine reasons often. I mean, there is this beauty, the spirituality, right? but wanting to go there and fight and whatever and prove you're the best, that in itself is like, there's a lot to unpack there. At face value, that might sound okay, like it's about competition, but yeah, I don't know if you're going there because you're a competitor. (laughs) (laughs) And then like even going back to the topic of child fighting, right? Talking about banning it or whatever, that's a different conversation. We don't even need to go there. But the problem I have is when people talk about it using the framework going back to like Noble Savage and stuff like that is of bioessentialism. Like it's genetic. Like they were just born to do that and no analysis of the conditions creating this. The brain without materialism. When they talk about like culture, they don't mean culture in this like academic way. They mean culture interchangeably with DNA. Even when they say culture, they really mean they're just born like that. Yep. That's just how Thai people are born. They're just born to do that. Going back to bioessentialism as if like there's different humans on this planet instead of just like one type of human and they all become different because of the conditions that they came up in yeah and that that kind of like you know that evokes um a memory that i have around when i first started like like first started like attending martial arts events um like before i went to thailand like you know i i first got my i sort of 
you know, started cutting my teeth, I suppose, in um, like tournaments, like martial arts tournaments. And, and in, and in the prairies here, like that's really the only place where you get to actually like compete, which is like, you know, karate tournaments. And then they'll have like this event that it's, you know, they'll call it like, like kickboxing or kickboxing sparring or something like that. But that's generally where like you got your amateur experience. Right. But, um, and they would say it was light, but really like you were just kicking the living shit out of each other. Like it was like, I never once competed in a, in a kickboxing tournament and, and it wasn't like pretty much full bore. Like you got basically disqualified only if you like you knocked a person out. And, um, and so pretty much everyone did everything short of doing that. Um, which, you know, which was interesting. And so what my, what I'm trying to say is that like, when I first started attending these events, like I noticed that like there were indigenous, uh, competitors at them, but I often noticed that like, man, like these guys don't have professional trainers. They don't have adequate facilities to, to do their training within. And a lot of this is just these scrappy dudes from often Northern Saskatchewan who want to fight, come in and then get thrown to the literal wolves. Um, and that's often how a lot of fighters, especially like in Saskatchewan, built up their fight record. It was against these like some a lot of these like native kids who were just like scrappy, just wanted to fight, but had no like business being in the ring, if I'm being honest with you, right? Like, but there was no issue with the regulatory bodies or the coaches or the fight makers like allowing this to happen, knowing full well these guys shouldn't be fighting this person. Like this guy is, you know, probably on his way to fighting for like a Canadian title and he's fighting some like kid from LaRange who's like, who's never probably actually had a professional coach. Um, they just go in with like a scrappy attitude and oftentimes, you know, they're, they make for some entertaining fights, but it, it, it was like, it was very obvious to me, like early on that indigenous people in martial arts and Saskatchewan anyways, were kind of just fodder for other people's like athletic development. And they didn't really see us as competent athletes or people who were going to like rise to that, like, you know, that competitive level. Right. Because you, you know, mentioned it earlier on, like, like training martial arts, it's a hella expensive like venture. And it's like, it takes a lot of your time, your resources. Uh, like it's, it's, it's a lot and you need a, it's kind of like, you know, it's that it takes a village to raise a child attitude. It's kind of like the same way. If you're going to develop as a, as a Muay Thai athlete, it, it takes a lot of people around you to help nurture you into like a good, into a good fighter. And, um, a lot of, in my, in my experience, I've noticed like, you know, you have these guys who just desperately want to fight and probably could have done so well had they had those opportunities that some of these fighters and from, you know, like you mentioned earlier, like these suburban guys who are coming in and, you know, have a chip on their shoulder and want to like, you know, cut their teeth and end up fighting these guys who, you know, who weren't professionally trained. And so, you know, it, 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 it it does a disservice to martial arts overall, but it also says a lot about the ingrained sort of white supremacy of a lot of um, people within martial arts because it was like I was watching it. and it, I don't know what what kind of um, situation I'm trying to call it into mind here, but it's just like when you're watching it and you're seeing like the clear discrepancy in their skill sets and even just like, you know, they're walking to the ring and you can tell the guy who has like, you know, the nice, he has like, the fight team jersey on or like the, the 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 satin robe and then like the other guys coming in literally with just like some like torn up billabong shirt like shorts and the, the guys supporting him it's like i admire the fucking like like the tenacity because like you know man hell of respect to anybody who steps in the ring because that's not easy to do but like it was like as soon as the bell ring you're just like 
why the fuck did this even happen to begin with? Like, who the fuck thought that this was a good idea? And like, they should be in prison right now because they're putting these poor kids at risk. And it's the conditions. This reminds me of the same thing that happens in boxing, not just the story you're giving about Native people being fed as fodder, but also the expectations people go to Thailand with, which is that a lot of American boxers, when they need to pad up their record or they've been on a skid and they need some wins to get a better fight, they'll go down to Mexico. And of course, there's like a lot of great Mexican fighters, but that's not who they're going to fight, right? They go there because they could find a bunch of really poor Mexican fighters and they know the job. It's not a fixed fight, but they know they're mismatched and they're going to go in there to get beat up, but they'll get paid, right? And so they go down there and they like fight four or five times, all wins, and then they could come back and get better fights. But now they've padded up their record. But then for them, even though for these fighters, they know <laughs> that these are just like people being fed to them, right? Just fodder. They still feel proud, right? Because they're like kind of going almost parallel to Thailand. Oh man, if I go to Mexico and beat a Mexican boxer, then I'm a badass boxer because Mexicans, like everybody knows they're the toughest, best boxers and I beat them. So I'm the best, right? And I'll bet to a certain degree, there's probably some of that with beating native fighters in Saskatchewan where it's like, oh, everybody knows native people are warriors, right? It's in their blood. They're warriors and I beat the warriors. This used to be their territory. I beat them in their territory. What does that make me, right? I'm the conqueror. I'm the man, right? Yeah, and you and I should also add to there's there's an additional context that I think people who are not from this area, you know, might not understand or appreciate because like I grew up like like I said before like you know, small town Saskatchewan, it was like farming community. Hockey is like the sport. Like I mean it's it's, you know, it's like stereotype, you know, it's religion, you know, but I mean it's true for the most part. I mean like sporting events in Saskatchewan, particularly when it comes to hockey, really exposes the racial divide. So when you, like growing up, going to hockey games was just like just the thing you did on weekends, right? Like, you know, Friday, it's uh, this town against this town. And, you know, people are, people would make the big pilgrimage. Sometimes you travel hours on end just to go to this town through rain, snow, you name it. Like people, it's, it's a big thing. And so when you show up to these, it's so weird, man, because I was just thinking to myself, like, looking back on it now, like, just how fucked up it is. But, you know, when you had um, a white town um, competing against a res, because a lot of times, you know, you have reserves that have, you know, really good um, Aboriginal or Indigenous hockey uh, players on it. Um, and there, there's a lot of really good uh, Native hockey players. Um, and so they're really competitive, right? And so... Uh, there was a lot of rivalries between, um, you know, small white towns and their uh, uh, indigenous communities that are usually kind of close by. And um, when you attend these games, it's like, it's fucking wild, man. Like the stuff people would say in the stands, like just pure, just unfiltered vitriol, racist stuff that was just like, holy shit, like this you would think it kind of belongs almost like in a different century or something like that. But no, nah, it's just, you know, it's just part and parcel living in Saskatchewan when you're brown. But when you like, people would be like fighting in the stands, like people would be spitting on each other. Like the, the hockey teams would be fighting each other. Like the crowds would be fighting each other. The fights would carry out into the parking lot a lot of the times afterwards. And like, you know, if you're the native team visiting, 
you know, the white town, like oftentimes you needed to get the fuck out of there super fast because, you know, you didn't want to hang around to see what would happen, right? Like, you don't want to get shot. You don't want to get like fucking chased out of town or worse, you know? And so like sport rivalries really, like sports, especially hockey in Saskatchewan really exposes, you know, just how toxic and racist this place really is because when you go to those hockey events and you know i haven't been to a hockey game in a lot of years mind you but certainly growing up in and around that i just saw like how like fucked up that was like seeing like white parents spit on brown kids and like it was just sort of like that's just part of it and so the reason why i'm bringing this up is because um the fight community is you know, it's a different sport, but in Saskatchewan, when like, you know, when, you know, you go tend to uh, an MMA, MMA event or uh, or a kickboxing tournament or whatever it happens, um, although not as, you know, pronounced or as overtly violent as some of the hockey games I attended, like, you know, it's very obvious, like there's camps people fall into, you're either in like the native camp or the white camp. And it's like growing up and like, and kind of watching, you know, watching um, these guys fight and like, seeing a lot of these native athletes get fed as cannon fodder you know it's like there's an, there's always like this immediate sort of um a div- dividing that happens like you know like i'm always gonna like you know cheer for the native guy because that was just like you know is what you're gonna do because like i want i want him to win i don't want like i want the white guy to beat him like i mean that that's that's just kind of like what i wanted to happen and um in saskatchewan it's like because of just like the intense division between indigenous and non-indigenous people here um that becomes really exposed in in sporting events i find that's true in hockey and i it's and it's just as true in martial arts although because martial arts is still very much a white dominated space you're usually in the minority when you go to these events so you got to be very cautious and careful in terms of how you you know express yourself i i, I suppose but um yeah it was it was like man it's wild like kind of watching like spectators in saskatchewan martial arts certainly in the early 2000s was like man it was it was not accommodating and it was frequently violent and um oftentimes you know if you weren't careful you know you had to be you know you just have to be cautious and navigating those spaces because you know the very real possibility of yourself getting into fights is just you know came with the came with the territory if you love the southpaw project become one of our financial supporters It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. Now, since you're both from oppressed communities, how you saw your experiences in Thailand began to change. Let me start with you, Ron. When and why did your perception of your experience change and how did it change? And I don't just mean in Thailand, but just your experiences in martial arts. Uh, Definitely my experiences in martial arts really started to change like post-2016 because I was 2016. Yeah. I, yeah, I was about 18. And uh, when like Trump started coming into power and everybody remembers this time specifically in America, especially people of color in America, because we always knew about like a lot of people of color did didn't think that we lived in some like racial harmony, despite what 
certain people make it seem like that there was like some type of racial harmony post Obama era, even though that was the narrative being pushed for a while. A lot of people didn't actually believe that. But there was a noticeable difference when like Trump started getting more popular that a lot of people of color immediately recognize just from the just from the rhetoric that like white a lot of white people men and women too it's not this is gender neutral a lot of white people were starting to like be like yeah finally we 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 don't have to shut up anymore about this and then when i got back from thailand so the timeline i was in thailand january 2020 i got back around early february right before the pandemic was official in the u.s and official meaning the u.s did absolutely nothing to prepare and we were pretty much fucked for a year and right now currently because we're still in it technically but i digress but uh during the pandemic i remember specifically that like i was struggling like i was like teaching muay thai was pretty much my only job at that point before i found another job later on in the fall that involved me like delivering like exercise bikes as a seasonal job to make some money that I was not making as a Muay Thai instructor, even the money I was making, which is not enough. So while I was like home, I like occasionally taught Zoom classes. I had a lot of time to myself to read, think to myself. And I also had a lot of time to be on social media, more time than I ever want to spend on social media anymore. And a lot of that has to do with the just, just insane shit that I was seeing people who even like white people who I originally thought were like, yeah, that's a kind of, he's a normal guy. I don't expect him to be some like liberal, but yeah, I, don't, I don't really think he cares that much. A lot of even like people like that were like basically becoming fascist overnight, like at the drop of a dime, just, just from being holed up in their homes. And especially once the gym started opening up and I started seeing people in person more, I realized that a lot of people just got more reactionary over the pandemic. Like, just straight up, people just got more reactionary. And it became very noticeable within martial arts. And I'm not going to name names, even though I don't like these motherfuckers. But there was a gym in my old area. I don't live there anymore. But there was a gym that was literally hosting, like, live stream Facebook pandemic, or as they say, quote-unquote, pandemic parties. And, you know, these guys were like military dudes. They de- they technically worked for the U.S. government. <laughs> and they're fucking like training. They were training all throughout the whole pandemic. The guy was open about it, basically saying, you know, fuck what the government says. I can do whatever the fuck I want. The, pa- the pandemic is BS. And there were a, a few people at the gym that I was at that was rocking with this dude. And some even left to go train with him. And the funny part is a lot of people at my gym were shocked, but because of my experience as a black person, I knew exactly who was going there and who was going to switch to go there because I know they like that shit at the end of the day. And I got to be honest, after the pandemic, I really had no interest in teaching martial arts anymore because Northern Virginia specifically is like heavily populated with just military and police just within the infrastructure of like a lot of money comes from like LEO in the military. For those who aren't familiar with Northern Virginia specifically, Northern Virginia is a suburb within Virginia, literally right outside of the D.C. area. And just to name a few companies, some this will be familiar to a lot of our listeners, Raytheon, General Dynamics, uh, State Department. I could take the Metro to the State Department, honestly. 
FBI headquarters in Virginia. Like, I believe it, there was like, there's a, basically every three letter agency you can think of is in Virginia. So there is pretty much no way you can avoid every, pretty much every martial arts gym in Virginia, in Virginia or DC caters to LEO. And the only one that I can think of that doesn't are actually comrades of softball, high style jujitsu. And that's it. But that's it. Literally one that I can aim off from the top of my head. But like, if you, you'll notice every gym has like discounts for law enforcement and all of this, especially I started seeing a lot of this shit and I peeped this post 2020. A lot of these people were starting to do this shit after the George Floyd protest. And that was kind of like the last straw for me. I'm like, I cannot, I don't want to teach these people how to fight. That was kind of my like thing with martial arts. I cannot, I'm not going to use my skills to teach these people how to fight, you know? And I was thinking about my experience in Thailand to kind of relate it back to that. You know, I was like in Thailand only for a month. And then I started like thinking about, you know, the travel restrictions and all that. And I'm like, man, why is it that despite all these people that go back and forth between Thailand, the United States Muay Thai scene has not improved really that much at all despite how much talent we have going back and forth to Thailand. And it's not really helping our development as fighters because the fighters that are good are just staying over there long-term for whatever reason to make a name for themselves in Thailand. But if you're staying in Thailand, you're staying in Thailand. You're not really doing anything for the infrastructure of your own country. And which is funny because these are like the Patriots. These are the American Patriots. They don't even want to come back and help other, <laughs> help other like Americans who want to train Muay Thai, which is kind of funny to me. But on that note, I, it's like I don't want I don't want Muay Thai to be just another commodity that I feel I have to sell to people that I don't really want to use this martial art because this shit can hurt people. I mean, there is a whole conversation around like you know this Sam like people thinking that jujitsu was the key to helping solving police violence, and then you had people thinking taking it a step further, being like, well, if they just train MMA, it's like, oh, you want to teach cops how to elbow knee? ground and pound people you gotta be fucking kidding me dude like they already do that without training so you just want them to be better at it like you think because they because they know how to fight they're gonna be less inclined to brutalize somebody that looks like me because i can like this isn't even like me being cocky but i guarantee most cops can't fuck with me with with, when it comes to seeing hands but it doesn't matter because guess what they have guns and i don't and it's my story against theirs and we see how that plays out in the news all the time. So if martial arts is about self-defense, if Muay Thai is about effective in self-defense, how am I going to defend myself against a police officer? No matter how much Muay Thai, boxing, MMA, jiu-jitsu I know, it will not matter. I can't defend myself against that. I can't. You're not allowed to. Just from the virtue of my position and their position, I cannot protect myself. So what does that say about self-defense? And what does that say about how Westerners and specifically Americans view martial arts culture in general, especially considering so many big names, big figures in jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, and MMA are all just extreme right-wingers who are want to promote self-defense and like protecting the weak. Protecting which? Protecting who? Like your own people? You, you, barely, you don't even want to protect your own women, honestly. Especially based on what we know about what's been going on in like the the constant like sex pests and scandals in these jujitsu even muay thai gyms that i know of you know muay thai doesn't get a pass on that shit either a lot of the sex scandal stuff falls on jujitsu because it's more like out there 
But Muay Thai does not get a pass at all on this, too. I'll be the first to say that. They don't get a pass on that shit either. And there's more Brazilian jiu-jitsu schools in the U.S., so just by the numbers. Exactly. The likelihood is higher, but that doesn't mean smaller martial arts aren't going to have those problems as well. Exactly. I actually like to point this out because there's a bias where people just think sexual assault only happens in Catholic churches, right? And this isn't to apologize for Catholic churches. No, like keep that energy, hold them accountable. But the amount of abuse that happens in other religions, because they're not centralized as one body, right? One bureaucracy, it gets ignored. Like here in the US, by the numbers, there's more reports of sexual assaults happening in Protestant churches than Catholic churches. Now, why is that? Because there's more fucking Protestant churches in the US. It is the <laughs> dominant. Yep. Christian religion. Catholicism is not the dominant religion here, right? So yes, it's a big problem, but it's like a big problem in a smaller Christian sect. But in the bigger sect, because it's not one church, right? Protestant is like more of an umbrella term, right? It happens more often, but because there's this bias towards like smaller things or because it's not centralized or it's not one body. And also there's a journalistic bias because it's not one body. You don't want to cover it as much because you're like, oh, this individual church did this, that individual church did that, right? I'm bringing this up because to frame sexual assault in the martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu by the numbers, of course, there's going to be more of it because there's more Brazilian jiu-jitsu clubs in the US. And they're also centralized under the IBJJF. But that doesn't mean it's not happening in other martial arts like Muay Thai, karate, taekwondo, because I get messages and DMs from people in those other arts every week talking about their own experiences. So it happens, but it's like not easy to talk about because of that. Like to the same point about journalistic bias is I can't centralize it under one hub. So it's harder to talk about because you're just talking about school A, school B versus like this whole art. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it right on the head. It's like, you know, if keep I just, people just need to keep the same energy. Like you, you nailed it on the head. Like I see this a lot, specifically with like even like people in Muay Thai who are really trying to be well-meaning, but like in all honesty, even if they think they're like really left-leaning, in reality they're just liberals. And I can tell because they never want to take it to the full extent, which is like, well, you know, that's just what those jujitsu guys do. And it's like, yeah, you hang out, you train at the same gym. Why do I have to call out my gym? I called out jujitsu. My job is done. Like you train at the same gym as the jujitsu guys, because guess what? I have yet to meet. I'm I I train at like the only standalone like Muay Thai gym in my area, and even that in and of itself is rare. A gym that only does Muay Thai. So like this this notion that like jujitsu is like this unique thing that like Muay Thai is just better than as far as the social structure. It's like. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, as long as y'all are both residing in America, y'all probably going to end up doing the same shit and believing in the same shit. And because y'all train with each other. They all know each other anyway. Like, y'all know each other. Mike, why did your perceptions about training start to change? Uh, well, I guess there's like, I, I like to think of it in like probably phases. So the first phase where I think my ideas around Muay Thai really started to change was because I was doing my master's degree um, from about 2009 till 2012-ish, 13-ish. And I, um, I wrote 
actually, I, I my, my my master's thesis um, was around uh, martial arts pedagogy, and uh, specifically like um, training um, Muay Thai, and it was like an autoethnography, and uh, it really sort of forced me to sort ser- of seriously evaluate um, all sorts of issues that previous to that I had really not you know maybe contemplated you know here and there but not really took it seriously and i should note that like the academic environment that was being sort of nurtured within was like quite i would say more in the radical tradition like i was being um like around that time when i was writing this uh, idle no more um came about and for those for those who might not know, Idle No More was like a major um, indigenous movement that manifested in um, in and around that um, well, like 2012 ish, I think. And um, and you know, and a lot of this was in response to at that time the conservative government's uh, just wholesale shitty approach to dealing with indigenous rights, uh, land. Um, and so, yeah, like there was, there's a lot of mobility, a lot of political consciousness raising at that point in time. And I think I definitely was, um, influenced by that. And so that was definitely shaping my interactions with Muay Thai more because I was starting to unpack, you know, you know, these, um, like these issues around class, gender, race. And, um, it was like, so yeah, like, so I was writing my master's. I had to reflect on some of these things, but you know, I was such like a, a neophyte and I think I was so like, um, not super steeped in these ideas in a lot of ways or not super refined. And I'll be honest with you too. I just wanted to get that damn thing written. I did. I, I changed my thesis. Topic <laughs> when it came right down to it, I just wanted to get that fucking thing off my, out of my life. And like, I'm currently writing my PhD and like, that's like pretty much the same attitude I have right now. I'm like, when I started it, I wanted to write like a world changing sort of thing. But now I'm just kind of like, I'm kind of more following this euphemism that my PhD uh, uh, supervisor tells me. He says, like, the best dissertation is a finished dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So, um, so yeah, when I, when I wrote it, I, I kind of wanted to get it done quick. So I didn't, I think, explore some of these things more in depth. But, like, I look back on it now and, like, Sam, when me and you were sort of exchanging messages and I started to look back on some of these ideas, you know, I started kind of peeling open some of my dissertation and some of it kind of like, oh, kind of made me cringe because I, like, oh, I wouldn't write that nowadays. Um, some of it was like, man, like, like there were some interesting observations in there. But, um, but so that was kind of like the first phase where I kind of really started to, I, I suppose, like, un, like, start looking at myself more critically especially because like yeah like yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a native guy coming from an oppressed community and i think you know there's an assumption when you travel to thailand or when you go overseas that somehow you know you can carry that same context with you elsewhere and to a certain extent you do but um i guess what i'm trying to say is that you think you're absolved of participating in colonial practices when you yourself are a colonized subject and you think that somehow absolves you, you know, and um, certainly like I started to think about that more critically, but I've, I've been to Thailand about like nine times, but I did about, seven, about nine visits. Usually I tried to go once a year um, to kind of, you know, sharpen my skills. But and during that time from about 2011 till about 2018, um, that's when I really started unpacking things a lot more. And I'd say definitely, well, and like this is a total plug to you, Sam. Like, I, I, really, I think a lot of this stuff tying 
my explicit sort of political consciousness that was being incubated within like the Idle No More work because what I do professionally has a lot to do with policy work. Um, I do a lot of work with government. And so my experience um, is typically been to sort of go to battle with like government, right? And so, um, you know, I kind of, you know, looked at sort of Muay Thai and in martial arts spaces as sort of a place to escape some of that. But really, you know, saying a place, you know, when people say leave your politics at the door is sort of in itself a political statement, right? Because um, you're, you're really only saying like, leave your inconvenient aspects about yourself at the door while we can enjoy our the space that we specifically curated for our own comfort, right? Um, but yeah, like when I kind of like in the last few years, especially like, like the, when the Southpaw Facebook group was open, um, it was like, man, it was like, honestly, it was a breath of fresh air because I had so many I had so many shitty experiences growing up in a place that I simultaneously loved and valued and had enormous benefit to me um, being a, the person who I am and like the particular issues I brought into the gym. Martial arts has been a lifesaver, like a literal lifesaver for me. And um, so there's conflict that, you know, comes about when I look at, my relationship to my gym and my coaches and my and my peers and my training uh, partners and it's just like my attitudes like I think I, I started to get a little just call it a little bit more brave let's just kind of say in terms of applying these political analyses to my own context because I think for so long I needed to compartmentalize to survive the space you know that I was in because I didn't want to like I said before you know the, the nail that sticks out gets the hammer and um, and it's only been like you know, I'd say in the last few years where I've really become more comfortable um, saying what needs to be said. And that comes obviously with its own risks and stuff like that. But it's a lot more comforting to know that you have a community of like-minded folks who are struggling with very similar issues. And I think that, you know, the academic piece was one part of my journey about starting to, you know, unpack my perceptions of Thailand and my, you know, my experience of training martial arts as as a colonized subject but also later on when i think some of it really started like um i started connecting more dots i suppose when i started participating in a lot of these conversations initially through that southpaw facebook group and um when i was just kind of like hearing other people kind of other bipoc folks kind of like going through very similar things i was like holy fuck like you know like these things go everywhere you just know in your bones like this shit's everywhere but like hearing a community of other folks kind of struggle with these things and unpack these issues. Like, for example, I remember a while back, there was a conversation going on in the, in the, in the Southpaw group about, uh, I won't say which fighter, but there's this one female fighter in particular in Thailand who's got a massive following and is like super, I've got like, you know, the most fights ever or whatever for a foreigner. And yeah, there was some, just some problematic issues with the discourse around how they presented themselves. And like, I remember, I always had like issue with it. I couldn't quite put my finger on why it was, but then the conversation was happening in Southpaw and I was like, yes, fuck yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what I was like. I, you put, you took the words right out of my mouth and it was so like, it was, it was so just illuminating and just rewarding to, to kind of see that. There was a lot of white fragility too, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Like, are you saying something about this person? I mean, it doesn't sound negative, but it doesn't sound positive either. And I don't like that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally, totally, totally. You know, like, I, I, 
I remember I made the suggestion about like, I don't know, a few years back being like, you know, maybe we should like aspire to having more trauma informed coaching within, within martial art, within the martial arts uh, community, because, you know, a lot of kids, especially the kids I was coaching at that point in time, were coming in from justice programs were basically the kids that like schools, foster homes were basically like kicking out of their doors. So like basically when they had no other option, like I was basically taking them in and like, you know, coaching them. And like, that was a really, really like interesting experience. And um, it like, then at the time it was just kind of really hammering home to me. Like people don't really know how to teach some kids who are confronted or who are coping with issues, especially those who are like facing issues related to complex PTSD, right? Like, your, your pedagogy needs to adapt to how people um, bring their issues in. Because, like, you know, no two people who have complex PTSD will manifest their symptoms the same way, right? Some may do, some may not. But, like, the point I'm trying to say is, like, we can better attenuate our martial arts programs to people who come from marginalized communities. We just sort of pay better attention. And, and I really, like, because I work in a certain area that, like, um, well, in education, really, and, like, that's fundamentally you know like it's a, it's a big tone shift in the last 10 years you know about how not only administrators but like educators need to be like like fundamentally reattuned to just how much child trauma manifests uh, as like behavior problems in class and like just you know you know there's all sorts of issues i don't want to get into now but like you know the achievement gap and all that kind of stuff but the point is is when i made like you know just like a very soft comment being like, you know, hey, we should do this. This would probably be good. We better, you know, we capture more people, you know, improve well-being amongst people who probably need it the most. And, and I've had like similar conversations with, you know, some folks in my gym kind of being like, you know, they get kind of tired only catering to like rich suburban folks because I mentioned earlier, like my gym used to be very centrally located in the city that I live in. And that was really good because like you could take, it was accessible by bus. It was like by foot and it was like, it was just like a, just a really great place to go. And it like, it was like kind of in the community. They moved to like one of the most fucking isolated spots in the whole city. It's in an area where like the average income is like something like three quarters of a million dollars. Oh man, this goes back to the conversation we had in the neighborhood martial arts project where we talked about martial arts can also be gentrified. Totally, and that's exactly what happened. You know, they there was like <laughs> it, it says a lot about how people look at brown bodies in terms of the potential that martial arts offers them versus it does like your like white kid named Ryder who lives in the the suburbs, right? Like I remember this attitude of people saying that like you can't teach these kids that they're gonna go out and they're gonna go and like they're gonna basically go be violent elsewhere you're just basically giving them tools to be more violent and i was just like hey that just completely betrays everything about martial arts and what i know about it because that's not how it works and um two it's fucked up that like the one like like lifeline that you know was really helpful in my own life um, you're saying that these kids can't have it because you see them as like these like violent things or the potential for violent, you know, and like you're just basically giving the tools to do that. And that was actually one of the reasons why, like, you know, I was sort of um, pressured, let's just say, to uh, shut down the gym. I was uh, I was kind of like building from the ground up at that time. And um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it was it was it was super fucked up, man. Yeah. A lot of the things that we talked about, right? 
as far as like racialized people absorbing these views when they go to a racialized country, right? Ultimately, this is just a symptom of a bigger colonial process, which is how the perception of the racialized other can be transferred to and internalized by other racialized people. So racialized people can also perpetuate coloniality, white supremacy, colorism. To your point, right? If you are colonized people, it does not mean you are immune to replicating a lot of those processes. Absolutely. Like it's, it's like, it was like what I was, you know, kind of alluding to earlier, you know, just because, you know, I'm, like, I'm an indigenous man from, from this territory and I've had like, you know, this is that, that point in like the native studies class where I have to kind of like itemize all the traumas I've been through to kind of like, kind of provide evidence about how hard it is to be native in the prairies kind of thing. But like, the, like you have this idea of yourself, you know, and like, you know, as a, as a, as a marginalized person, even though, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, you don't say that, like, you don't carry that attitude with you everywhere. Like, I'm an oppressed person, but like you, you, you nonetheless have history affecting you and only you because of who you are. And um, I think that sort of implants this false consciousness, if you want to call it that, um, that somehow that absolves you from participating in colonizing processes elsewhere. And I think to myself about how like there's this, there's this indigenous bourgeoisie class of like professionals and consultants that exist in my in my in my line of work that um really like to visit um all exclusive paid trips to mexico and i always find it curious when i see these guys who are on one hand like attending these um events about land back and promoting indigenous sovereignty and like um really sort of like uh advancing you know the idea of indigenous liberation and then go to a fucking other country and participate in the denigration of a whole other people i just find that like it's fucked up and like when people like it kind of get called out on it they think well no i got native like that that's not what's happening it's like dude that's literally what's happening you're you're thinking that somehow because you're this you can't participate in it that almost makes you worse <laughs> it's like what i was talking about earlier right this bypassing right or maybe it's not bypassing right maybe to ron's point they just straight up lying cognitive dissonance yeah. now the way we think about muay thai and training and fighting in thailand in the english-speaking world is framed by white people or is framed for white audiences so mike is there any overlap with how native stories are told and who gets to tell your stories because that too, for a long time, was told by white people. Yeah, like that's such a important conversation. I feel like only, like honestly, in the last five, six years, you start to see like a like a critical emphasis on ensuring that indigenous voices and stories are being presented by indigenous people and to ensure that there's fidelity and integrity to the the stories that we're trying to tell and that is represented authentically to whoever you're showing it to and like um that's 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 like i feel like that's so like very recent in a lot of like indigenous um spaces nowadays um that wasn't always the case you always had to go through gatekeepers to get the things that you wanted out there. And often like that resulted in uh, a product or a, 
a, a discourse or an image that like, you know, misrepresented and it often sort of reinforced white ideas around you. And so when I think about Muay Thai and like how it was packaged to me growing up and, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, it was like it was movies and it was MMA. Right. And like, of course, that would be like how the West would come to it. Right. Like, you know, like with all the issues with MMA attached to it and certainly how it was like initially incubated in its early days, you know, there's all sorts of issues with it. But, um, but, you know, it wasn't like I came to martial arts because it was like, you know, like local hockey or something like that. It wasn't just, you know, it was, it had to sort of um, latch onto it because of largely how the media portrayed it and largely to be honest, like how white culture um, uh, represented it. And like we said earlier, you know, like, you know, you kind of like, you can compartmentalize your rationale for it. Sometimes it's just like as, as simple as like, oh, I want to like get tough, you know, I want to like learn these effective quote unquote martial arts. And, um, and that can be really challenging. So I, I guess I sympathize, you know, with this idea that, you know, how, especially like white Muay Thai practitioners slash influencers who travel to Thailand and then sell the Instagram story to us over here. I can definitely I can, I can, I can feel the frustration about what that must mean to Thai people and Thai Muay Thai practitioners out there who, who don't get that opportunity to represent what Muay Thai is to them to the West, right? Because oftentimes, like any, well, pretty much, I don't know, when I go on Instagram, it's, 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 it's mostly like white people. I, 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 I specifically follow Thai trainers and Thai fighters just to avoid some of that, you know, and you kind of got to navigate the Thai language within the posts. But for the most part, it's really difficult to sort of perceive Muay Thai outside of how white culture has packaged it to the rest of the world. And I suppose that going to what I was saying earlier, you know, that's sort of like a frustrating double-edged sword when it comes to sort of like, on one hand, you're promoting something that, you know, is really important to a group of people. But on the other hand, you know, it's also serving aims that, you know, actually harm you. And, you know, I think about like early representations of indigenous people in film and art, and it was kind of like, a lot of it was tokenized and a lot of it was, um, you know, not the way we would have liked to do it, but some, but there's still sort of this like attitude that like, well, it was, it was something, so it's good. You know, it's like, we'll take what we can get kind of thing. And, and I, I just think, you know, that can get better with, as time goes on. And I think that you're, it's going to be very hard for like, especially like non-Thai Muay Thai practitioners to sort of get out of the way. And I think that's sort of like, you know, I remember that kind of being told to us early on in, in some of the Idle More conversations. It's just like a lot of times you got to decent to yourself, right? Like even me as an indigenous man, like, you know, like, you know, I can take up space that is um like inhospitable. I could take, I could take up space in a way that's inhospitable to certain people around me. And it's like, if we don't have that consciousness in terms of how, um, you know, Muay Thai is represented to the world and if you don't empower Thai voices to represent it in a way and to have those stories meaningfully can be conveyed to to a broader audience we're just going to continually perpetuate a bunch of shit about Muay Thai that is just going to continually harm the sport harm the people within it and further you know imperial colonial aims within Thailand and just you know and also you mentioned earlier on you know kind of saying that like you know martial arts is like heavily favored by law enforcement, you know, as their preferred mode of, you know, self-defense. And so when you have to share spaces with military and cops, like it, like it's fucked up and it's like, but no one really gives you that opportunity to convey that, I suppose. So when you go on Muay Thai Instagram, you're not seeing a bunch of white people holding pads for Thai people. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's almost like from that framework, right? 
to your point about what they exist for, it's like almost like they exist to hold paths for white people. Totally. That's the image. Yep. Now, Ron, do you have thoughts on this as far as like who gets to tell your stories? Because like white people have never told black stories, have they? Like there's no white savior stories, right? <laughs> right. They don't do that, right? You know, man. <laughs> man, you know, actually, as a funny aside, you know what movie I was thinking about recently? I was thinking about some movies that I grew up watching as a like as a, a kid, but old enough to remember. Like I was thinking about that movie, The Blind Side, <laughs> and I'm like, Sandra Bullock, why, <laughs> why did you do this? Good lord, this movie did not age well. This is bad. And apparently, the story wasn't even true. That was the worst part. It was not not accurate at all. At all, they didn't even get it close. And I'm just like, man, like it's bad. But like for real, man, like that is like. But, like, to continue to talk with Moit's eye, like, that's a big gripe I have. Like, and what's funny is that the only people that I can actually talk to about this, even if we might not agree on everything politically, is, like, other Black Muay Thai practitioners. Because we have, like, we do understand what it's like to be perceived from a racialized lens. And especially the only people that seem to be, like, not rocking with or glorifying child fighting in my circle are usually people of color, more specifically, the black Muay Thai fighters I rock with. And a lot of it just comes from like we've seen where that pipeline goes, where you where you're taking a, a child's childhood away from them because they gotta be the breadwinner. Or worse, this constant like whenever there's a racialized other you know, there's no long, there's no long, they're no longer a child. They're automatically an adult, no matter what, no matter where and when they exist in time. Well, the seven year old kid is fighting for their family. A child shouldn't be fighting for their family in any context. And Gerald Horn has talked about this, right? Because it hits different because he wrote a book about black boxing and how in the past they had black, even children fighting each other for the entertainment of white people, right? Exactly. And so we have a history of that, not just with black people, but it's like that has been a history of colonialism. And so even if Thai people are the ones orchestrating it, the fact that it's white eyes there watching this and paying for this and ogling at this and like even uh, romanticizing this, then that changes things. If it was just like Thai people doing something and only Thai people watch it, that's one thing. But the white people there, their gaze changes the whole thing. The Western gaze changes what it observes. That's the power of imperialism. And also the conditions of how this all happened, right? It's not like it's happening in a fishbowl where Thailand is in a bubble from the rest of the planet, right? It's all in one giant fishbowl that's been impacted by Western colonialism and Western hegemony. So it's not like nothing was affected by the West, right? And this isn't the episode to talk about it, but it's like, if you look into the history of Thailand, just from like World War II, their alliance with Japan and after where they allied with the U.S., the West, or the deals that they signed with Great Britain, right? But the post-colonial period, Thailand became a hub for the U.S. and the CIA to control communism in that whole region, right? Yeah, like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I sometimes think about this and, like, how sometimes, like, well, let's just say, for example, you know, like, a context that's familiar to me, like, how like indigenous folks can end up defending the very system that's harming our own communities because they benefit from it, right? Like, and I sometimes think about how in Thailand, like I remember one of my one of a good friend of mine, 
uh, Thai guy, actually, he was raised in America. He was adopted very early on, but then he moved back to Thailand, um, or just because he was just fed up with the States. But like he, um, yeah, so anyways, he was like, he was a fighter and like we became really good friends and he kind of like tells me a lot about sort of things that I just, I guess I probably wouldn't be able to know as a foreigner. Like he, I remember him taking me around to like different areas of Bangkok. And like, I remember we took to this one place where it was just like, like one of the highest crime rates in the area, but he kept saying it's like, you know, the West tends to look at it as like this really dangerous, licentious sort of like area of Bangkok. And it, you know, there's a lot of crime there, but I mean, like, you know, that's what poverty breeds, right? It's just, he showed me this like area there where it was like this little oasis, right? It was this little boxing um, ring and some just ratty pads and some boxing gloves kind of sitting there. And it was like a place where like even the gangsters wouldn't go to. It was like this kind of like haven, right? And, um, and I remember there was like an issue that happened a while back where they were they were cl- they were closing a lot of the uh, the street stalls in 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 and around Bangkok with the new government that came in I guess a while back uh, they like really hammered down on food stalls and so like there's these really like classic areas of Bangkok where you could go just get like world class cuisine from like like a two dollar plate of food like sitting on a sidewalk right and it was just like the it's one of the I, I really love that um, aspect of Bangkok but then they like pushed all these like vendors out right and in lieu of having actual storefronts and so it displaced a lot of like poor people who were really like utilizing you know these food stalls to to make a means but anyways i was just i remember like the rhetoric coming from uh from thai people or for certain from certain thai folks at the time right like there was kind of like this and it it kind of made it almost like it was almost eerie in terms of its similarity to how people sort of justify the unjustifiable back here because they'll say things well it's 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 we gotta it's it's like in the it's for the sake of progress you know it's like it basically boils down to that this is this is how we progress and you know it's like and within that it's so it's almost like there's this coded message that like we we need to be like the west in other words and um that's sort of like it's fucked up because it's kind of like it just collapses. it collapses like Thai people and like and all like their complexity and their experiences into like like kind of alluded to it earlier Sam like the western gaze and like what that needs to be and like and then it's co-opted and internalized by like the Thai elite and like unfortunately that can sort of like you know creates because like you, you mentioned earlier um and I think Ron we we didn't really talk about it this episode but I don't think you know maybe not the time for it but gambling is such a huge issue and like um gambling kind of like dominates the stadiums and like it shapes matches it's like shapes almost every aspect of the sport and and not for the better and um and that system has been sort of protected um by like a a core tie elite and it's like because they benefit from it you know and it's like there's no interest to change because you know a certain core group of people can benefit from continued exploitation and domination and that's just like the unfortunate sort of um dynamic anyways that i've kind of noticed over the years to piggyback on that to talk about the way that you want to present thailand that's palatable for the west think about a couple of years ago thailand had one of the biggest pro-democracy movements of the time right i think only like india prior to that right had more people but like thailand had so many people on the streets demanding democracy for so long and you know where you never saw that you never saw that on any of the Thai Instagram, you know, people over there. They weren't talking about that at all, right? So they're like, oh, I talked to real Thai people, but you're not talking to those people who were protesting, right? The same thing with like people who were all about India when it comes to yoga and stuff, right? When 
It's like a huge percentage of the planet at one point was protesting, right? You never saw that from the yoga community in the West. They speak for Indian people, but they never talk to these people, right? The ones who are demanding uh, democracy and worker rights, right? And the same thing with Thailand, right? So to your point, right, to collapse Thai people into one experience, like, yeah, you could also still talk to Thai people and have them confirm your biases, right? But why aren't you also talking to these people who are talking about pro-democracy? I know several people in Thailand, right, who disagree with some of these posts from these influencers or even like some of these lefties who love Thailand or whatever. But it's like, I guess it kind of creates this echo chamber where they don't hear their voices because they're afraid to post online or disagree with them online because of their surveillance of their reactionary government. They also don't want to get attacked and harassed by reactionaries and Westerners. So it's like, yeah, then you can set it up in a way that confirms your bias or see it however you want. But that doesn't mean that that's like the only view. And that doesn't mean that that isn't a reactionary view. Whether it's in Thailand or the US, if the only people you know is from your gym, you're getting the cult view. Also think about the essentialism of thinking you know a people by hanging out at their gym. It's like a white dude going to Korea to train Taekwondo and thinking now I know all there is to being Korean. You're flattening and essentializing, but also you have no context for what's normal. What's normal in gym culture is not necessarily what's normal. We talked about this in our episode about trauma-informed coaching, how only knowing people in your gym warps your perception. You're an unreliable narrator. Worse sometimes than people who have no experience in the gym because you'll be overconfident and they won't. Do you even follow anything on social media about Thailand outside of training life? Then how much do you even care about learning about Thailand? So where does this confidence in Thai knowledge come from? You told me this off the air, Mike, about how much this bothered you, but you raised the point that if you're seeing child fighters being bought and you don't bat an eye about it, then maybe buying children for sexual services hits different or perhaps doesn't hit at all. Like we've talked about this before, but so much weird shit and weird beliefs permeate the gyms because if gym people are all they know, they'll have no outside voice telling them how weird they are and no outside or third party barometer to measure against. Often martial arts people don't even know about other sports culture as a reference. They have no bar. It's like thinking you know all there is to know about the world because you've learned about the world through your gym. It's Dunning-Kruger. It's that Henzo Gracie bullshit. How can you do an ethnographic study of a thing without knowing how to place it in a bigger context? Imagine someone coming to the U.S. only for soul cycle and now thinking they know everything about the U.S. and the lives of the people here. How can you even talk about soul cycle without knowing the context of the culture it exists in or how it came to be? Especially when you're here in the U.S. for your own personal improvement and just to do soul cycle. So you're not even invested in learning about the rest of the U.S., nor do you have any incentive to because your goal was soul cycle, not U.S. history and culture. Like if you really wanted to know about it, the gym might be the last place to go to study a country. Also, when you're there for a specific reason, you have no time to learn anything else nor meet anyone else because you're only there for that specific purpose. Like the example of soul cycle, if you're only there to cycle. But because you're here and because you meet people at your gym, you can convince yourself now you know everything there is to know. It's like I hate people who go to a country through the U.S. military and think they now know everything there is to know about a country. 
You don't even know the U.S. How are you going to know about another country? It's like what Ron said. You don't even know American sports or America. How are you going to know everything about Thailand and their national sport? And we talked about this for Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but martial arts can also be an institutional tool for muscular nationalist politics. Muay Thai is no exception. It's even built a pilgrimage aspect where you immerse yourself and with state permission, allowed to be provisionally Thai. Imagine going anywhere else. Imagine going to the prairie and doing what Westerners do in Thailand as far as dress, tattoos, spiritual practices, name changes, and so on. But Thailand is different because they were given permission and everyone somehow knows this so people don't make fun of it. So it's a unique state and political project and we can't forget about that either. There's a similar project with Thai restaurants. That's called gastro diplomacy. You can look that up also. Then there's one championship's use and promotion of Muay Thai and Muay Thai's move to be included in the Olympics. So it's a much bigger project. It reminds me of Korea and Taekwondo and K-pop or India with yoga or even Jiu-Jitsu with Brazil. There's also great political books about how soccer has been used as a political tool. Actually, there's extensive academic work on sports, all of which also applies to martial arts. It's just that many practitioners aren't aware of this work, which is to say, you really need to step out of the gym to even understand the gym. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I was just thinking about just, so the, the whole time I was traveling to Thailand, it's like, that whole time, like, I guess since like the original coup, which was around like, what, like 2006 or something like that, um, which deposed their then prime minister was like, I don't know, it was, um, I suppose like, I, I should have seen it more. It should, I should have like known more about it, but it was like the forces that govern and sort of animate tourism in Thailand sort of like inoculated you from it a little bit. Cause I remember asking like questions about being like, what's that going on? Like, why are these people wearing red shirts? And it was like, I remember like tuk tuk drivers and other folks would just be like, like you could almost like two things. You could almost hear, like see the fear of wanting to like people even just expressing an opinion in, in, in that kind of context, which is totally understandable. But on the other hand, you saw it as sort of like, depending on who you asked, it was like, I remember, uh, this one gentleman, and uh, he was sort of like, uh, I guess what you want to call it, like a, I don't, I don't want to say his name or even his title because it would be pretty easy to identify who he is, but like, he was, I'll just say like, definitely in the upper echelon of Thai class. And he kind of, I remember one point, it was very telling, you know, we were sitting in uh, at, at this gym in about 2011, and he kind of like was shitting on the, on the red shirts. And it kind of like, you know, that when you're of a certain class and like, that's what you're position is towards it like it kind of like started to tell me a little bit more about what i needed to know and then certainly as i started learning more about it since then like i i started to see what the red shirt movement is and why so many people within thailand you know or not so many people but why certain people and the spaces that western people particularly were familiar with were like shielding people from even coming to understand what it is right because i mean like to do that would um would create some some immediate challenges because it like it confronts the notion of Thailand as this like this peaceful place whatever right because you know if we see it as like a a country immersed in like intense civil conflict um, it can feel a little bit like wrong I guess to want to visit a place like that right but it's like 
it's funny how people have this like amnesia when it comes to the red shirt movement over the last like 15 years or 17 years or whatever it's just like it's just like it just never happened and i asked people who like who literally been to thailand like multiple times since in like the last 10 years and they like Asking about the renter movement, they even have no fucking clue what you're talking about. There is no war in Bossing say. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a white foreigner in Thailand, right, and you have like this outsized voice, then you should actually question yourself. Wait, why do I, as a white foreigner, have such an outsized voice here? Do I have an outsized voice because I have privilege? Do I have an outsized voice not because it's the most deserving of being elevated, but instead it's the voice they want elevated? the voice that helps push a reactionary political narrative. Like the U.S. loves to elevate voices of happy immigrants, of happy tourists over Black Lives Matter. And likewise, white foreigners get uplifted over pro-democracy movements, over red shirts, over labor movements. They'll have you believing everyone loves monarchy and the military government. But for a lot of Westerners, since they benefit, they don't know or care why they went to Thailand and became a big shot as if it's all meritocracy and free markets. It's all deserved. So that's why they talk so much. But that's not the same for every Thai person, especially for activists, protesters, student movements, and young people. You should actually be suspicious of yourself. If you go to like Korea, I'll use my country as an example, and it's like you as a white person get to have this outsized voice. You should really question why that's happening. You know, you're like, wait, is it because my voice is so good or is it that other people are not allowed to talk? You're not that cool, right? It's like, you have to question yourself. Like, how is this happening, right? You have to stay vigilant, not just of like what's happening around you, but also of yourself and your own narrative and also of your own rationalizations, right? Like if I'm taking up space in like in an indigenous movement or like talking about racism against black people, right? And I'm taking up space there and then my voice is really loud. Is it because like people who look like you are getting killed for saying shit. And it's like, I'm not, so I have no fear of speaking. Is that what's going on, right? And that is part of that Americanism. You know, I could go wherever and say whatever I want because my freedom of speech follows me everywhere I go. It's like whiteness is a superpower and white power follows you everywhere you go. But Ron, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this final thoughts, at the end of the day, exploitation is exploitation, man, you know? And I worry... I sometimes to like kind of go full circle and connect the dots to a few few things. I sometimes worry about the direction that Muay Thai is taking because uh, you've actually brought this up in the Liberation Martial Arts Curriculum. Again, I highly recommend anybody listen to this. The best $15 a month you're ever going to spend, seriously. But it's kind of for those who are like already subscribed to that and kind of like this kind of relates to a lot of the conversations that are happening there because I've been personally doing my own self study and engaging in like, you know, just looking at what Muay Thai look like. Not necessarily like I'm looking specifically at like Golden Era Muay Thai as this is known, but I'm just trying to really like look at, I'm really doing my best in my own free time to just know what Muay Thai look like without white people to be blunt, just to see like how different it looks. And it's hard, like boxing, there's a lot of like all time great boxers that there's really not a whole lot of footage of them out there, even though boxing is a way more popular sport than Muay Thai. So it's even worse with Muay Thai because there's not a whole lot of footage of even the all time greats in their actual primes. It's usually after that, the footage isn't that great anyway. 
But what I noticed in the golden era, and this is me, I'm making this up on the fly, just my own analysis. I am not an academic. That's not my job. This is me. I'm a practitioner of Muay Thai, a black man in America, and I'm just trying to piece it together and figure out like what we might have missed because of Western influence in Muay Thai. And the one consistent thing was just like, it seemed like without the influence of like gamblers dictating the money that these fighters, workers have to make, is that there was a lot more freedom and creative expression within their styles. It wasn't just like technicians, brawlers, clinchers, and then kickers. And then you got that. You had that, but you had even styles within those styles. Like you had technical guys who mostly use boxing, even though, you know, if a Westerner tells it, oh, the ties don't box, like, oh, yes, they don't box. The, the people who rack up hundreds of fights, they definitely don't know how to box, right? Whatever. But like, you know, you can see, like, it looked fun out there for them. And which is funny because even the people who like hype up the golden era, they're like, oh, they were just grittier. They were just tougher. Again, like glorifying like grit and like poverty and all that shit, you know, like Westerners tend to do. But like, that's not what I got out of it. I, the, the same feeling that I had like watching Anderson Silva coming, coming up in his prime was the same feeling that I got watching like the best fighters in the golden era fight. It's like, it's beautiful fighting. Even the fighters who weren't went on major winning streets all the time it's good fighting and so when you have not only western influences affecting your sport but you also have the influence of gambling affecting your sport there's a there's gonna have to come to a point in the Muay Thai community where like there has to be a real critique of these two things that can't just be subbed up to just being quote-unquote Thai culture. Oh, it's just in the culture. It's just in the culture. Because when I hear that... Or tradition. I hear the exact same thing. Oh, you know, it starts in the family. You know you know how those Black people are. It's just in the family. You know, it's just in their culture. They're just violent people. You know, they, they listen to their rap. They wear they listen to their violence. It's just in their culture. It's the same fucking shit, whether people want to acknowledge that or not. And I will never... Especially nowadays... Whenever I hear that, I can't entertain it. And I, I just really don't want to even deal with that because it's not an analysis and it's bioessentialism and it's just racist bullshit through and through. So I don't want like Thai, the Thai people are people at the end of the day. Thailand isn't some fixed point in time in history. They are people that evolve and are affected by their material conditions just as we are. And if the only analysis that we have from them regarding Muay Thai is from white Westerners who don't even want to have a real discussion about the material conditions outside of glorifying poverty and glorifying the fact that these people are struggling, then that's not a real analysis. That's just Western chauvinism. So now I know why they call that period the golden era. It was because it was before white people. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to say it out loud. That's the way I perceived it. I'm like, so before like all the white... And even like the best fighters, the best foreigners, like... The best foreigner wasn't even white. It was a Cameroon. <laughs> Danny Bill is the best foreigner ever. And yet white people don't even want to acknowledge that. They're like, no, 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 Ramon Deckers. I'm like, oh, okay, man. Like anything from Europe and America is the shit, even though Danny Bill is 
he is from Europe too, but that's different. He's African, so that's not that's not the same. Foreigner means European. A black fighter, especially one from Africa. Well, that's an illegal immigrant. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it's it's so ridiculous, and it's like you know, and even the foreigners who were coming up, even the white ones at that time, are just better fighters than the ones that are out now who are really good, but it's just not the same level because again. Danny Bill has some flair to his style. A lot of people uh, call it like, oh, he beat the ties using the Thai style. And it's like, so he was creative and he had a style of his own and he used his brain. That is, that's the Thai style. What is, it's like Mexican boxing. What is Mexican? <laughs> what does that mean? Like, which Mexican boxer are we talking about? They don't like, what? Like, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? You know, American boxing. From where? Philly? Bees? I don't know what that, like, who? What? <laughs> They're collapsing culture into a flat, fixed, one-dimensional thing. And by doing so, it's easier to grasp. It's like people who collapse blackness into hip-hop and quote-unquote the hood. Because then it's simple. It's something you can consume and participate in. So now you know all there is to know about blackness. But going back to the Western gaze and the observer influencing the observed, Westerners are not an empty box that can go somewhere and just take in without leaving anything behind. You are influencing a place just as it is influencing you. Except in the case of whiteness, white influences more than it is influenced. It's asymmetrical. Some call this privilege. Some call this white supremacy. Even coming from Western gyms that are already toxic, you're going to bring that baggage with you. And it will color your lens. Like colonial ideas like survival of the fittest and steel sharpens steel. And that'll frame your view. And then you'll project that onto everything else as your analysis. And then maybe you'll see childhood as an extension of steel sharpened steel and see children as steel to be sharpened rather than as children, which goes back to views of not only child fighting in Thailand, but you can have minors fighting professional MMA and kids doing tackle football. It's the idea that children are just small adults. There's such a disproportionate amount of people in martial arts who are obsessed with the Save the Children QAnon movement, while simultaneously believing children to be small adults, and who will still partake in sexual imperialism, and who will die on a hill that a teenage girl was asking for it, or that a teenage boy wants to be sexually assaulted by an older woman. So all of this goes back to children and consent, which goes back to sexual imperialism. There's been people who admit on Twitter to looking for and going to countries where they have a low age of consent and think nothing they do there is wrong because it happens to be legal there. That's imperialism. And imperialism will shape your view because it's the water you see the world through. It's the water you're so used to, you don't know you're in water and you don't know you're always looking through water. And since you can't see it, since you don't notice it, you will defend it as if it's your very reality. It's your very identity. It's the very world you know. Also, this is still very illegal for Westerners because your domestic consent laws follow you. And it's especially illegal to try and go somewhere with the intent to commit sexual acts on minors. So we can't even be like, oh, we have to accept this because it's legal and it's their rules. But I guess this no longer applies when you become a sexpat, which is more incentive for someone to sexpatriate. <laughs> <laughs> the age of consent was a problem in Korea which goes back to Japanese occupation when they lowered the age of consent to 13. Then the U.S. who maintained comfort women stations 
and sexual imperialism kept that law intact. It wasn't changed till much later. And really, even U.S. mainstream outlets now admit Korea has only had, quote unquote, democracy for a very short time. And prior to that, it has been under U.S.-backed dictatorships. And even with that said, Korea still doesn't have democracy. U.S. still has control over Korea. So this is a pattern. And Asia knows all about this. Even Western attraction to Asian women because they perceive them as childlike. Imperialism is paternalism, which means child property. Don't be surprised when macho dudes going to a country to prove how manly they are also partake in sexual imperialism. This isn't just in Thailand. You also hear about this in Filipino and Indonesian martial arts. It's just that Muay Thai just happens to be more popular in the West, and it's more of a thing in Western Muay Thai than other martial arts to go there and train and fight a native person. But is that innocent? Is that manufactured? Who does that attract? What baggage comes along with that? How will that frame your experience? Even if you're not a macho white dude, how does this framework affect your experience, affect your views? This whole conversation, right, was about how even non-white people can adopt and be influenced by the dominant view. So this whole episode, hopefully, is one that stirs self-reflection and hard discussions and discussions that don't end in one discussion, but discussions that continue and people talk about and think about for a long time. But with that said, this episode has gone for a very long time. And due to some technical difficulties, we lost Mike, but he's been more than generous with his time. So he doesn't even need to come back. So thank you, Mike. And thank you, Ron, for being on the show. This was a really important conversation to have. This is a this is a great conversation. And, and thank you for inviting me again, Sam. It's nice to be back on the show again. If you like this episode and like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program. If you want to train with us from wherever you are, you'll find lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. We also have Fighters Brew, which is a manga-inspired martial arts audio series, as well as Fighters Brew transcripts that include martial arts tutorials. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online, along with Fighters Brew on Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening.